Welcome to the Everyday Whiteness podcast series, The Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white, but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself and to make visible what is often rendered invisible in business, community, and culture. I want to welcome today's guest. Her name is Yvonne M. Orr. She has been in the development, communications, and organizational management industry for nearly 30 years and has an extensive working knowledge of religious, philanthropic, and cultural arts communities. Yvonne is also an actor, dancer, choreographer, and spoken word artist who has been in the performing arts for over 25 years. She's the author of Malika's Soul, I Am Light, Volume 1, and Malika's Soul, I Am Healing, Volume 2, titles under the five-part poetry books from the Soul Journer series. She has taught youth classes and set choreography for various theaters and professional dance companies. As if there wasn't enough for Yvonne to do, she serves as the executive director of the Indigenous Community Service Center as well, which focuses on social justice reform initiatives, recovery and cancer awareness, youth developmental programs, and wellness initiatives. You can connect more with her on social media platforms, on all her social media platforms at Your Life. That's Y-O-R-R, Life. Yvonne, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning. It's always impressive to to witness your life in these like seven sentences. Um, and what an incredible bio you have. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to to be with us. Of course. I love having conversations with you in general. So very excited to share an uncomfortable conversation with you. Yeah. And then specifically on the topic of, of well-meaning whiteness, you know, I, I've brought that conversation forward because of my own personal journey of waking up to unconscious aspects of, um, of systemic white supremacy in my own identity that I didn't even see and didn't know I was relating with. And as a black woman, um, your story is, is not just any story. And I really appreciate you being able to bring your perspective and lens and wealth of experience to this particular conversation. Sure. Sure thing. So I want to start just by sharing a little bit more that is not contained within those seven lines of my life. Um, and I'm actually taken back a bit and just jump, right? Um, I was born in defense. And what I mean is I'm not born under the traditional circumstances that most people are in a hospital setting, in a labor room, you know, whether it be a midwife or a nurse in a OB gynae. I was born with just my mom um, on the shores of Lake Ontario in Canada mm. um, without medical attention. 
my mother having to hide from the United States government because at the time she was a high ranking officer of the Illinois Black Panther Party. And there have been several raids on the headquarters of the Illinois Black Panther Party at the time under the leadership of Chairman Fred Hampton Sr. And um, being who she was rank wise, um, Angela Yvonne Davis uh, helped her and another comrade who was uh, field secretary at the time, another national position, uh, very few women at that particular time held national rank. Um, a young lady by the name of Yvonne King uh, accompanied my mom. And so we have a tradition in this country of snipping the umbilical cord. Uh, my mother was forced to take it back to how we used to do in the motherland and had to chew off my umbilical cord. And so that was what I mean is I'm born under defense. You know, it was very tumultuous times. Um, ironically, being a parent now of two grown children, um, I find it just mystifying that my mother was able to successfully bring me into the world. My father, having been on his way to see her, had gotten into a horrible car accident where everyone was killed but him and ended up in the hospital. So that's how it ended up just being me and my mom, who at the time was 19 years old. Who at the time, uh, as we know now, uh, Congressman Bobby Rush, um, Ambassador, former Senator Carol Mosley Braun, they were all in it together, um, having met on the campus of the University of Illinois at Chicago. And so my mom graduated high school at 16 years old. She was a certified Mensa member. So by no means does it mean that she was not intelligent, mm. but those particular times call for a different type of person, different type of black woman. And so as we know the nurture that occurs in the womb, I felt all of that turmoil. I felt all of that angst. And traditionally people will think that you can remember back to your you know, toddler ages. There are some underlying subconscious things that I recall that over the years as I create my parents, and I'll get to my dad in a minute, um, they would confirm that what I thought were pure uh, memories, uh, like dreams, were actually memories, things that happened. And so we came to the States in the early 70s, and we fled to Philadelphia, which is where my father, Delbert Orr Africa, was introduced to the MOVE organization, one of the founding members, as a matter of fact. And the MOVE organization at its underlying philosophy, uh, very contentious, because at that particular time, they believed that we should uh, grow our own food, sustain ourselves, not be reliant upon a corrupt government. Um, and we're just seeing, you know, wear our hair in its natural state. Um, hence now it's just a very common, you know, hairstyle to have your hair in what they formerly call dreadlocks. I um, call them locks. I myself used to have locks um, for over 20 something years, you know, down to my waist even, and uh, found myself to be beautiful before it was in style to wear your hair in that nature. And so my dad um, and my mom, at the time they separated, 
My mom came back to Chicago in the mid-70s. I remained with my father until my mom lost her dad. And I was here on a visit when my father's organization had a raid on their headquarters. And unfortunately, at that time, a police officer was killed, a white male police officer. While facing the house, while hundreds of thousands of gallons of water were being deluged upon the members of MOVE and family members at that time. This is following previous raids where Life Africa, one of the babies of one of the members was stomped to death by another white male police officer. Um, this is August 8th, 1978. So everyone is in the basement and I will repeat hundreds of thousands of gallons of water in the dawn of the morning are being poured into the basement area. And literally thousands, tens of thousands of rounds were being you know, shot at that particular area. And so at the time that my father um, begins to surrender, the police officer has already been shot. The early reports from the coroner say it was from friendly fire because he was facing the house a number of feet away from the home at that. And there's no possibility scientifically that a bullet can come out of a basement area, travel several, like 60 feet curve and enter this police officer's back of his neck and exit from the front of his neck. It's just scientifically impossible. My father surrendered and only wearing a pair of jeans, barefoot, bare chested, arms up, and was beaten almost nearly to death. Suffered several broken ribs. He lost sight, um, partial sight in one of his eyes. Um, he was stomped repeatedly, kicked in the head. He broke his jaw. He broke several bones on his um, collarbone. And subsequently, nine men and women were sentenced for the one crime where the second coroner who um, replaced the fired one that did the actual report, and they had raised the entire property, including the home that night so that there would be no evidence collected. The second hired coroner changed the coroner's report on the stand. And those nine men and women were sentenced 30 to 100 years for pulling the trigger of that police officer. Now, again, depending on what science you believe, scientifically, nine men and nine women cannot hold one gun to kill anyone. Alongside of that fact was, you know, the reason I keep mentioning the hundreds over 600,000 gallons of water hoses were poured into that basement area. Um, another baby drowned in that incident, in that raid. And when the rifles, because their philosophy is they believe in life and its succession for every living entity. So they don't kill bugs. You know, they the rescue move. dogs. Yeah, the, yes, the move organization. Okay. Um, and unlike the Black Panther Party, open to anyone that would assign themselves to that philosophy. So there are white members of the move organization at the time, you know, very different mm -hmm. faction, if you will. And so, again, um, 
rifles, guns that they would hold in the images, they were all shells because they do not believe in that. All right. Because so you're the, saying the pictures where move had guns, they actually didn't have bullets because that because, wasn't a part of the philosophy they lived by. That would be correct. And so it was a way to mimic and get the attention because so many members of the Black Panther Party would be seen in steps of government buildings, municipal buildings, holding actual guns that did work. Right. And so because they had not yet been getting the attention they were trying to get at the time. Um, to call attention to the corruption of, you know, the government and um, the fact that it was not uplifting, you know, people in general, not just Black people. Um, they began also having some form of a uniform, if you will. Um, and, you know, I say sharing their, you know, philosophy, others say spitting rhetoric, whatever it is, you know. Um, for some, it was a disturbance, like who eats raw, you know, vegetables, raw potatoes, you know, raw garlic. But that's we know now to pause. Yeah, that's what I <laughs> want to pause on is that what, you know, with the move organization, this this countercultural organization, you, you had mentioned this particular incident was 1978 or 79. Um, 78. They, mm -hmm. they were they were doing what a lot of things today are very popularized, right? Like this whole life movement, this sustainability, this sovereignty. Correct. Uh, live off the grid, kind of be sustainable. So, you know, it's not a radical idea that was against government. It was this radical idea that says we uh, can live in harmony with nature and not depend on the government for electricity and water and all these types of things. So it was attempt to be independent. And we see that happening now, whether it's the food, whether it's the natural hair, or whether it's this kind of get off the grid movement, live in intentional communities. Correct. So um, unfortunately, my father became a political prisoner, one of the move nine, and uh, was one of the second to last to get out. Um, so I want to pause on that. Real quick, yes. a lot of our listeners aren't going to know what the move nine is. So I really want to emphasize you brought up your birthing. This is the Black Panther Party. And you're saying your mom, not your father, but your mom was involved in that and as a high ranking woman. And, and Fred Hampton, he was, you're saying he was like the leadership, the head leadership in Chicago. And your mom was affiliated with, with that particular group here. Right. So there was no Chicago Black Panther Party. It was the Illinois Black Panther Party. Got it. Got um, and so a lot of times it's referred to as if it's the Chicago Black Panther Party, but there was not a particular branch. We just happened to be based here. Um, but it was representative of the state of Illinois at the particular time. And, you know, the, the bottom line is I'm born of two dynamic revolutionary people. And, and I, well, I wanted to go back to the move nine, because when I was in high school, I saw a um, a flyer of a political prisoner by the name of Mumia Abu Jamal. And that's how I learned about the move nine. Um, so they got this nine that you just gave us the story of the raid into the house and the gallons of water and the babies that drowned. And, and yet because one white police officer got killed and scientifically it was obviously their own fire still these nine became political prisoners in 1978 or nine. Correct, correct. Um, and there's a image, it's a global image with my father surrendering with his arms up, you know. Um, it's ironic that, you know, during at least the most recent, you know, parole hearings, 
Um, they said they wouldn't let him out because they didn't want him to become a martyr, you know. Additionally, that he was a threat to society. And this is in his 70s, you know. So the first uh, to get out was Debbie Africa. Um, second was her husband, Mike How Africa. How long did they serve before even entertaining being able to get out? A span of 40 to 42 years. So my father was in uh, just shy of 42 years. He uh, was released June of 2020. And that's after an 18 month period of me trying to get him to be treated for what I believed at the time was prostate cancer, uh, never receiving that treatment. So by the time he got out, um, he was officially diagnosed with stage four prostate and bone cancer. Um, and he died six months later, you know, wow. but he had a wonderful six months out um, before he took ill, was able to enjoy his freedom and were it not for the fact, um, you know, that I was also co-parented by my father from behind bars, um, found very unique ways to discipline me when I would get out of line and would just stop writing because, you know, this was before you know, the internet, the World Wide Web and all of that. And then later, you know, um, just really had a wonderful relationship. I'm kind of like a daddy's girl. Um, How old were you when he got sent to prison? 10. Wow. And you were here. Right. Um, you were I was in Chicago at the time. Right. So um, a very different dynamic with the Move 9 standing um, at any point in time, different times over the years, these decades of them being domestic political prisoners that a lot of people don't even know about. Don't know about um, it at all. Right. Unfortunately, in 1985, on Mother's Day, May 13th, 1985, there was another raid on the MOVE headquarters. And again, the MOVE 9 um, were already in prison. Um, so but unfortunately, I lost my baby sister in the bombing of the MOVE headquarters at that time. Um, they dropped a bomb, the bomb spread. The police, and for clarity, this is the Philadelphia police that dropped this the This is the authorization of the mayor at the time, African-American male, Wilson Good, authorizing the chief of police to drop um, the bomb on there. And then second to that, um, an, another authorization for the fire department to stand down and not douse out the fire. To purposely um, not put it out. They were basically housing the family and the children inside, barricading them inside and not letting them out. Correct. And then as members tried to escape, they would be shot back into the home. And so they couldn't escape. Um, ultimately, there was a lone survivor, one adult, uh, Ramona Africa, and one child, Birdie Africa, um, who later, unfortunately, um, died um, from a drowning on a cruise ship <laughs> in his 30s. Ramona Africa still, you know, very much alive, but then also was in prison, you know, upon being able to escape. That bomb, ultimately, it destroyed the entire block. And so people that were neighbors of the Mu family lost their homes. Um, the city settled, you know, down the road, helped them rebuild um, those people. 
and then had, you know, very substandard homes built and still had issues. So it's not like they were able to really receive anything, you know, uh, homes that wouldn't stand up to um, floodwaters, homes that just were, had, you know, inefficient uh, construction and materials. It's just a very, very sad and bad time. Um, yeah, and my parents go, you can go to this area of Philadelphia. It's like Osage or something, right? Um, correct. Right. And so you can go there now. The block. And look right. at the whole radius. They actually, you can see it online if you Google, the, you know, yeah. move bombing 1985, and you can see the radius. It wasn't just the headquarters and the and the, the apartment of dwelling of the move organization itself. And remember, these are children. These are are, are families. Um, eleven children. Eleven children. Yeah. Eleven. Eleven men, women, and children died in that bombing. My sister was 12, Delisha, Africa, even as early as, and, 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 you know, along the way, like one of my uncles, Phil Africa, he passed away in prison suspiciously. Uh, my father's uh, move wife, because he had pun intended, moved on. Um, Merle Africa, she died in prison. Um, and so it's just very unfortunate that over these years and, trying to make parole that historically, despite, you know, tens of thousands of letters of support from across the globe, that that particular system would deny them the ability to be paroled prior to them becoming old elders mm -hmm. um, in prison. You know, my, my father got out, he was 74 years old and he went in as a young, early 30-something-year-old. That's very, very unfortunate. Um, and it's only one because of who we are as people, um, understanding the power of our history culturally, and just from pure love, you know, that we were able to have such a beautiful relationship um, throughout those years. I will say that my mother never mentally recovered from the trauma she experienced while being a member of the Black Panther Party. And it's something that I never really spoke about until I myself was into my 40s. Um, when I remember getting uh, an application for my passport and I was denied my passport by the federal government because of their history. And um, my birth certificate, I did not receive it until I was 16 years old. So they wanted to know, what, who are you? You're like, why is it such a delay in it? And I remember being a junior in high school at uh, Whitney Young Magnet High School here in Chicago. And them telling me like, you can't be, you know, you got to get your stuff on record. You know, I even remember being younger and my mom telling me, you can't tell people that you were born in Canada. And, you know, I had the fear of God in my mom. So, you know, sometimes I would question things, but sometimes you knew just not to question. Okay, well, where, where was I born? Chicago, Illinois. Okay, well, how does that work? And so we, my mom had to do an affidavit on the circumstances of my birth in order for me to get a passport. I was doing work in Ghana um, at the time. And after that, because she literally still feared for her life, my mother moved to Ajijic, Mexico. And Pause. that is where my mom, yes. So you're saying because she feared for her life from the government. Yes. 
Yeah. So let me just, let's get clear here. So her involvement in the Black Panther parties, which was a part of a revolutionary movement to counter the abuse that they were, were experiencing from the government and then her having to interact by doing the affidavit for your late birth certificate, meaning she's having to then interface with the very government that set up the circumstance for why you and her had this birth in this yes. particular circumstance. And so I'm pausing on that so we can really hear and feel the weight of this level of, of trauma. Yes. What it means when you give birth under very tumultuous circumstances and then have to interface with that same very institution that says we're in service to you. All you have to do is fill out this paperwork. Yes. And, and it's like, not, yeah, ma, things are changed. It's okay. I need to do this. And she's like, mm -hmm. no, nope. like, like every cell in not. her body is like, that's it's like, not, don't do don't it. Don't do it. <laughs> right. Don't wow. do it. Wow. Don't do it. So my mom passed away in Mexico. Wow. Um, one night just went to sleep and didn't wake up. And so this is in 2014. So, I mean, relatively close to where we are, you know, yeah. to this day. And um, my passport has since expired. Um, prior to my father getting out, they said, you need to have somebody else do another affidavit, you know, one of your parents. And so my father couldn't do it because he was a prisoner, you know, political prisoner. I say political prisoner, they just call him a felon, you know. But by all rights and means, like you mentioned Mumia Abu-Jamal, at the time when Mumia was arrested and sentenced, he was a award-winning journalist that happened to be somebody that covered the MOVE organization. He was not a member of MOVE, you know? He's an educated Black man as well. Jumping just a little bit, when my dad met my mom, he was fresh out of the Air Force, honorably discharged. The Air Force. Gotta be at a certain level to be, you know, piloting. And so, you know, my mom called him, you know, a handkerchief kind of Negro because he didn't know anything about the movement. And, you know, this is, this isn't it. And so, the dynam dynamics of where we are society-wise, where we're going presently politically, I've seen this my entire life. I've been here before. And my parents raised me to be an assimilationist, meaning like you gotta be able to assimilate in order to infiltrate. And because of their trauma with how they lived fighting for the rights of others, different measures, different means, but there are many different things that we do now that are based on what both of their organizations, you know, in essence, believed in. When the Black Panther Party was doing the free breakfast program for children, they were ostracized. And now we see that in the free lunch program and free breakfast programs for kids, you know. When they set out to walk with neighbors, elders, to ensure that they would not have any violence or harm come to them. We see that now with your neighborhood watch program, you know, Big again, passage. ostracized, right. So very interesting with the things that they were not allowed to do simply because of their color, as well as their affiliation in those respective organizations versus what I came of age in, an opportunity to be fully, wholly educated, um, my mom spoke seven languages. Um, and so 
though I may sound a certain way now, I had a, a different type of accent. Now I have a, a little Midwestern twang because I'm a two-time stroke survivor, but it still sounds like I'm quote unquote regular. I just know it's different from how I used to sound to myself. Mm. And so um, I, I'm tired. I'm in my mid fifties. I'm tired of the rhetoric of this black white conversation. I'm tired of the rhetoric of not being able to have voice in its rawness and uh, being vulnerable because it's only through speaking out about my story that people become aware of what still continues to happen in our own country. But then also I would love to see it, you know, evolve into a form of awareness and compassion just for other human beings. MAGA, regardless of your political affiliation or beliefs, the way that we uh, continue to grow in our hatred towards each other, hate crimes against uh, Asian Americans. Um, the most recent time I was caught the N-word was probably about uh, 14 months ago. I don't even know how somebody is doing that. The growth of such a beautiful name as Karen now being associated with, you know, a raging white woman deciding that whatever black person she's encountering has no right to do whatever it is, even something as simple as sitting on the side of a wall or bench of a very luxury high-rise building and assuming that that black person is loitering when it's also someone that actually is more um, wealthy than the white person, white woman, now monikered as a Karen. I don't like that moniker, by the way. I don't like that um, women, regardless of their race, are now, you know, if your name is Karen and you're white, you know, it's all, oh, you're suspect, you know. I don't like that my son, um, graduate of University of Wisconsin-Madison, Lean Six Sigma, um, black belt, industrial engineer, consultant with a Fortune 500 company, um, six figures, salary, still has to contend with the fact that he is a black man and be in fear when or if he is stopped by police, which by the way, a couple of years prior to him graduating, um, he um, were to stop hitting a small feral animal. His car jumped the curb, which messed up his tire. His fully paid for car, I might add, which unfortunately, I say unfortunately at the time happened to be Alexis. Because he has AAA, because we're responsible parents, he's insured, he calls for AAA to come help service his car. While he is sitting in his car with one of his friends, also another black male, the police in downstate Illinois pull up to him. They don't ask if everything is okay. They pull up to him, tell him to get out of the car. He knows the protocol. His hands are on the dashboard. He refuses. He cracks his window. He lets them know what happened and that he's waiting on AAA. They ask him to prove that his vehicle is his. He asks if he can reach into the glove compartment. And as he is doing so, they snatch him out of his vehicle. They throw him to the ground. They put handcuffs on him. And as his friend is 
kind of like, like, what's going on? Why are you doing that? They're telling him to get back in the car. He gets back in the car. He complies. They're asking my son to take a breathalyzer. Now, mind you, I told you, he was sitting. At the time, he had a bad cold. He had just had some Robitussin. He tested 0.000038 below or at the alcohol limit. They arrest him. He tells them, I've just had some Robitussin. It might be that. I haven't had anything to drink. I'm just trying to get home. They tell his friend to go home on foot. They are in downstate Illinois, and they go to school in University of Wisconsin-Madison. They are very far away. They put him on foot. They take his friend's phone. They take my son's phone. They do not let him make a phone call at all for four and a half hours. My son has an asthma, anxiety attack, like all at once. He needs a breathing treatment. They refuse to give him a breathing treatment. They end up calling the EMTs. When they get there, the EMTs say he has to get a breathing treatment. We have to put him on oxygen immediately. His heart is having too much stress. His lungs are labored. The police officers refuse. They tell him he's just playing. That's what all in words do. He's probably a drug dealer. And mind you, at that time, my president is, um, uh, my son is the president of the National um, Black Engineers Association. My wow. son is over all social activities for the University of Wisconsin system, which is inclusive of all of their campuses. He is also a mentor and a volunteer. He is telling them all of that. They tell him, don't use your white voice to talk to me now in words. It is only because an officer, when he tells them, I, you know, I want to call my attorney, I want to call my parents, I want to do something. My mom works for the government, which at the time I did. The officer asks him, what does she do? And he tells them, well, she's a consultant with the Chicago Police Department, but she used to work for them. They say, yeah, right. Does she have rank? He says, I don't know. But he gives them my number because it's still in his phone. When they look me up and they see what I used to be ranked as under the public information officer for the Chicago Police Department, they immediately let him call me. Within less than 20 minutes, I have an attorney on site. I have him released. We do not post bond. And it takes a lot for me to explain to his father why I do not want to press charges. It takes a lot for me to explain to his father. They are unaware. What we will do is insist that they be desk suspended, that they go through training, that that entire department goes through training. What we will do is ensure that all of those charges are dropped, that there be no record where my son has been fingerprinted, having never been involved with the law. What we will do is make sure that they apologize publicly on the very steps of their police department in front of other students from that area school. And we will make sure that people know who they are. I do not want their families to be impacted by them losing their pension 
because at the end of the day, they did not physically harm my son and he was okay. But I do not want these officers on the street doing the same thing, whether it's to a young black male that's educated or uneducated. And that is compassion. That's the compassion I'm talking about. And the reason that I go through so much of my background and history is I have every right to be angry. I have yes. every right to rage and I have every right to look at any white person as suspect. But I have dear friends that I count as my brothers and my sisters that are not my complexion mm. or my race. And unless we start leading with love, we will never be able to, as Gandhi says it, you know, to be the change we want to see in the world. You know, and it's too much of our religions or what we think we know that we, you know, leave to the assignment of harming other human beings. Mm. I can't stand it. Mm. And I would really digress to say, I wouldn't want anybody to prick me. Like they say, poke the bear. I'm raised defensively. I never had a fight as a child, as a teenager, you know, those schoolyard fights. I don't have that experience because I'm raised to kill. I'm raised to defend myself if needed. Yes. Um, and unfortunately, my first fight was, you know, in a domestic violence situation with a another Black male, which leads me to, I don't like how we treat each other in our own communities. And, you know, that's across the board. So it pains me when my daughter has to be brought home from her PWI institution where she received a full scholarship and was doing forensic science because she's also experiencing hate and racism being in Virginia. It pains me that that particular school, um, Virginia Commonwealth University, I'll call it out, has her um, you know, being stripped of her scholarship because she participated in a march to bring down one of the Confederate statues where her same compadres, if you will, that were white young ladies of the particular club that she's in, they don't receive anything but a warning. Mm. But not only do they strip my daughter of her scholarship, she's unable to continue to matriculate in her particular chosen field because the scholarship is what allowed her to do so. Hmm. That is the type of unfortunate racism prejudices that still exist unknowingly with people that think they're doing the right thing. That's uncomfortable. It's, it's sad. horrible. It's horrible. Yeah, and it's, it's sad. It, it, it shows the poisonous roots that are underneath the, the layers of these systems and these institutions. Like what you just described, I wanna go back a little bit, what you just described with the choices you made around this interaction with the police and your son, you chose those particular wraparounds for several reasons. One is you're thinking about the future of your son and then the impact of how can we actually create internalized change in some way that creates a different outcome in another circumstance, as opposed to hear that I'm angry, hear that it's not okay what just happened and making this kind of like external exclamation. You wanted to make sure that it was from the inside out that there are going to be, it's not going to be as loud, it's not going to be as flashy, but it's going to be um, impactful in a way that is sustainable. That's kind of what I heard you say. Exactly, because have we taken and stripped them of their jobs, which makes them lose their pension or done something punitive 
all we're doing is just putting a, you know, a, a misguided, wrong, racist, white male that's formerly law enforcement back on the street that every time he sees another young black male that reminds him of my son, he's going to have some type of rage towards him because he has been punitively, you know, absconded from his career. And also, you know, it harms his family. Maybe, maybe with proper training and a little bit, you know, having you show yourself publicly, this person was a deacon, you know? The, the one that actually told the EMT, don't give them anything. These ends do this all the time. You're a deacon in a church. You're a Christian, okay? Um, not even necessarily Catholic. So, you know, you very well understand, regardless of your denomination, you know, what it, what it means to sin, not sin. And yet you have it okay in the eyes of your viewpoint from formalized religion. You know, Jesus is a white male to you, white, blue-eyed, blonde male. Not necessarily the case given the origin, but, you know, people believe what they want. And they live um, in states of cognitive dissonance for long periods of time without ever researching the very obvious truth that's in a book. Correct. And, you know, technically, ethnically speaking, we're all brothers and sisters because we know scientifically now where the origin of, you know, humanity kind of emanated from in that particular region, you know, um, what we know as the continent of Africa now. So it's not to say that we're all some form of blackness, but we're all so integrated within our DNA, you know, um, I, I, the same way that uh, my grandma got to see and vote for a black, you know, president is the same way I hope to see a time where we're just a lot more compassionate on a higher percentage. You know, I don't like that we live in fear. I don't like that, you know, my wonderful, beautiful city of Chicago is talked about in the manner that it is. You know, I could have been anywhere in the world living and flourishing. I chose to come back home. I chose to give back to the community that helped raise and be, make me become the woman that I am today. I started my life out as a community organizer, got certified in it working in the Latinx community at the time, and then also working on the West side, doing labor, you know, work, helping people organize and unionize and get fair wages. It wasn't about, okay, is it just, this is helping black people? You know, when the economy flourishes, we all flourish, period, point blank. When we invest in decades long disinvested communities, a lot of things can change. You know, education becomes different. The walkability of a community is different. You know, the ability to get fresh produce. We shouldn't even know what food deserts are in the 2000s, but we do. You know, it's it's just devastating, devastatingly hard to raise children, regardless of who you are. It. Um, I recently had a health scare and had to go to a rehab facility. Um, that's part of a company that has multiple facilities. The images that I was shown in the brochure, so vastly different from what I experienced in the Black neighborhood because it's closest to my home. It's what my insurance, which is 
you know, Medicaid will cover. And it was one of the few beds available, you know, to go through physical and occupational therapy. Hmm. But the same company, their facility in the South suburbs is 100,000% different than the facility that I was in. Hmm. The level, and I, I, I question it, you know, immediately I wanted to go home. Uh, you can see my background, you can see why I want to be in my place, right? <laughs> um, but I thought, okay, well, maybe God has me here so I can advocate for us because there is no way aesthetically that a place should look like this. There is no way medically um, I too needed breathing treatments, but the machines didn't work. So I had to hook up to an oxygen tank and try to do my breathing treatment that way. What? It's no way that a company should be allowed to have resources, beautification, therapists upon therapists, staff in one of their facilities, but the one, the one that's in the Black neighborhood, it is what it is. Right. No resources, no. The one that's in the Western suburbs, equally beautiful, resourceful. It instantly made me think of our educational system. You know, I, my mom purposefully sent me to schools outside of my neighborhood at the time, which was Morgan Park. Um, I was actually homeschooled up until the time that my father got incarcerated. So I didn't even start school until fifth grade. Oh, wow. um, and we were fortunate enough Again, she was a CPA, so she was smart. She had her own business. I come from five generations of entrepreneurs. You know, we're pretty cool people and we're pretty savvy and we're smart. So we know how to have our own. Um, and so when it was time for her to give me history lessons, we're traveling the world. I was world traveled before I was 10 years old. You know, we learn about the gold rush. We're all the way in California. You know, when it's time to learn about slavery, we're in the Caribbean, we're, um, later down the line, she was like, you have to go to, you know, Africa at some point in your early 20s, you know, so I did, it's the passport kind of thing, but that trauma, it, it, it just never, ever left either one of them, you know, and fortunately, my father had a different type of light, um, even through his pain of having lost his daughter, um, and lost his livelihood having spent all of his life in jail. Um, seven years in solitary confinement, I might add, because wow. he refused to cut his hair or denounce his affiliation with Moon. Wow. So the psychological years. breakdown of trying to denounce your affiliation with the group of your belonging. And I, I think political prisoner is is definitely the correct language. And I, I really want to pause on this again seven years in solitary confinement because he's choosing not to cut his hair and not to denounce his affiliation. Am I correct to say Mumia Abu-Jamal still in prison for reporting on the movie? Mumia is still in prison. He did not um, go to prison for reporting on the MOVE organization. They just made that affiliation to further... Um, disparage his character as part of his sentencing. Yeah, um, yeah. Unfortunately, he was never affiliated. He just wrote about them. He just wrote about them. Unfortunately, his brother um, had gotten detained and got into a situation, and Mumia 
in his defense um, and same type of thing. Ultimately, unfortunately, a cop um, was killed, you know. I remember that. Um, um, shortly before my dad got out, I started sharing letters from my father, you know, um, and then we all have now seen um, Judas and the Black Messiah, um, that character Judy, uh, loosely based on the women of power in the Panther Party at that particular time. Uh, my mom was minister of culture, was one of the only women at that time that wore combat gear, combat boots. Um, and uh, both Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. and myself, um, you know, doing consultation for that particular movie, you know, talking, having interviews with Charles King as well. Um, one of my, you know, co-brothers, Mike Africa, him and uh, Tommy producing uh, 40 Years a Prisoner, the documentary on the MOVE uh, organization, which I highly recommend, you know, watching. You, you'll be able to hear my father because he was interviewed. Um, and you'll see him upon, you know, him being free. I personally invited Tommy to come and record um, his release. And to know that I'm a part of that lineage and those stories that the public gets to hear about, even with some of parts um, of Judas and the Black Messiah is loosely based on a true story. So, you know, there are aspects of that that are fictionalized because um, my mom's name is Christina Chuckles May, not Judy. <laughs> um, and the difference with that in 40 Years a Prisoner is a documentary. So everything is factual and, you know, it's, 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 it's so hard to watch that neither of my children have been able to watch it all the way through because mm. this is their grandpa, you know, and they had their own relationship with him as well. Mm. Um, the intimacy of who we are as a family is no different than any of your other nuclear families. You know, we just have different circumstances that we're raised and lived our lives. Um, and so being next to my father until his last breath is one of the greatest gifts that I've ever been given, you know. Um, having my children there um, a few days before he passed and we're singing his favorite songs and, you know, he had not been able to speak for a little bit, but to have him kind of come out of his stupor. My daughter was pregnant at the time with her first child, Jax is my grandson's name. And we already knew what his name would be. We're all named under our royal lineage. You know, I am Yvonne Malika Kosowa or, you know, meaning born on a Sunday, Malika's angel of the night, um, which was my original name. And my mom changed it when we came to the States because She's like looking down the road. I don't want you just being, you know, they see your name, they see blackness. So I've been Yvonne M. Orr a long time. Um, I am black Irish and proud to be that. My great, great grandfather came here from Ireland to Ellis Island, made his way down to um, the Carolinas, met my great-grandmother, an indigenous Native American, Choctaw Cherokee, and started the line of only children that I come from. So 
my grandfather, Samuel Orr, born of Samuel Orr. Unfortunately, my great-grandmother died at childbirth. He is an only child. My dad, Delbert Samuel Orr, born of Herma Orr and Samuel Orr, only child. Um, my great-grandparents from my, matern my paternal uh, grandmother's side uh, met on the Panama Canal from Belize and Panama, so that Caribbean is in me. My grandmother's born and raised in New Orleans and fled New Orleans from working for somebody that tried to rape her at 13 years old and made her way on the bus and the train herself to Chicago, later meeting my grandfather, Samuel Orr. I'm an only child of Christina May and Delbert Orr, you know? Um, I'm proud of that. And the Orr line, the lineage that I come from, it will never be lost because it's taught to my children from birth to be so very proud of who they are and so very compassionate of others regardless of their race. But you will be aware and you will know when to trust and when not to trust. You'll know how to follow your intuition versus rhetoric that you may have been taught over the years outside of this household and learn for yourself and seek for yourself and do not ever, ever, ever believe anything that you read to be the 100% truth in print mm. or on television because we lie. That's how that system works. That's how that system works. And can you speak to that? Because what I hear you when I listen to you, how I feel you, Yvonne, is you, as you said, you were born into defense. You were born into these very deep rooted, systemic, um, abusive systems. And your parents held so much of that trauma as you talk about and didn't get a chance to move that through them. And yet what I hear from you is this, this massive awareness and groundedness in that history and a level of compassion and direction that you know is possible. And so how do you reconcile that rage, right? The the knowing the roots. And I think you called it a bit of an assimilationist where you're learning from the inside out. Kind of give us more of that inside out lens as opposed to kind of the, the fight the system approach. So I'm gonna go back to one of my um, experiences professionally. I had been requested to become the public information officer for um, the police department, the coordinator of special projects for the CAPS program. Um, I'm a grant writer. That's just like one of the things that I do. So years prior, I had worked with the pilot program for CAPS in the piloted communities. And we were up on our 10 year anniversary and they're like, hey, go get that girl that wrote all of this out so we could get the federal funding for it. So they came and found me and they're like, okay, we want you to work with Northwestern on the white paper for it. Okay, great. Then they're like, okay, we want you to work. Like we want, and I'm thinking to myself because my father had a few incidents with law under John Birch, you know, um, I'm like, hell no there is no way the police department absolutely not i had a grave um disdain for the police at that mm. particular time and i remember in my interview um i'm sitting down with the superintendent at the time um 
I also had to work under the mayor's press secretary. I was one of the liaisons writing his speeches, um, setting up everything for the marches that he would attend, writing superintendent, first deputy speeches, uh, the CAPS director speeches, um, and in turn being responsible for going out. What mayor was this? What mayor? This is Daly. Okay. Just so listen. Richard here. Richard M. I might uh, um, differentiate. Um, and ironically, I majored in political science because of the Daily Machine under his dad, Richard J. So they asked me, you know, what's your viewpoint of the police? I said, I, I, I can't stand them. I don't like them. Why? And because I could not voice why, I kind of was like, huh, my belief is only because of what my parents experience mm. from law enforcement in their different areas, having nothing to do with me and never having been impressed upon me. It's just my awareness of what they went through that made me decide I can't stand the police. And because of having been educated and studied, I was like, okay, so now all of this time I've thought one way and I'm in my late 20s. And now I'm realizing that the way I've been thinking my entire life is solely based on my empathy for what my parents went through, but not because that's what they taught me. And certainly not because that's what I experienced. Okay. So I took the job. I asked my dad. He was like, you better go get that good benefits, you know. <laughs> you better go ahead and get that good paying job. Um, but it was, it was enlightening but it was such a horrific experience being out in the streets across all 25 districts, having to assimilate into the community as if I'm a member of that community. Um, I started out as a child actor on Broadway. So I'm also an actor and, you know, just going out to see what the people are saying to be able to come back and form the story that we ultimately read in the newspaper or here on the news the, the loss was devastating. Some bad apples seeing that, you know, and hey, we can't, we can't act this way as law enforcement. And then also, you know, how the community would react just from police being on the scene or knowing whatever, or the success of really fortifying the CAPS program and bringing neighbors together I remember being in one community doing community organizing and um, the elder was probably like 72-ish or so. She had been there her whole life. The community had turned over um, from white to African-American to then uh, Latinx and African-American, a sprinkle of whites coming back because it was going through gentrification. And she said, in 11 years, I have not had one neighbor say hello or anything to me until now. She's like, this is absolutely amazing. That particular uh, community that has a block club, you know, we started doing block club events and all of that. They are one of the strongest block clubs to this day. Very, very low crime. Little to none carjackings as, you know, is very prominent right now. You know, no catalytic converters being stolen over there because when, you know, we stereotypically talk about the nosy neighbor, but that particular block, you can't, you can't really come on that block 
without neighbors. You know, they're like, hey, man. <laughs> so those Who neighbors. Who you here to visit? <laughs> right. Those neighbors are very, very in tune. They know how to organize for what they want. They got their block club cul-de-sac. And I like to think it's because of my genuine love for our collective people, um, particularly, you know, indigenous people, minorities. They still keep in touch with me to this day. And that job was like 20 years ago. Yes. That's where that stems from. You know, the ability to be willing to evolve, to shift trains of thought that you were so solid on thinking that you knew, mm. your own awareness, you know, based on you and I having conversations in the past, I would never ever have associated with you um, anything having to do with, you know, your whiteness, so to speak, and being unaware right. and having these assumptions. I just, if someone, has said, someone would have told me that about you, I would have refuted them, argued and debated them, hands down, you are wrong. You do not know her. So for you to come into that own awareness on your own and to dig deeper and look at that, look at the trajectory of just your upbringing, you know, and, you know, where you were in spiritual places and practices and how that also did not promote feminism, did not promote our wholeness. It's pretty amazing to me. Or to be able to start seeing it for what it was, cultural appropriation, right? That just right. because I got, you know, out of this mainstream white rhetoric of what it would mean to be born into Midwest America or whatever, because my parents were, quote, countercultural, right? They thought they were making the, ca the conscious choice. And that's why I really appreciate a lot of the things you're bringing up, because these things are nuanced, right? On one hand, my parents were leaving their white families to try to go with something else. You know, the Black Liberation Movement was happening, the mm -hmm. feminist movement happening, Vietnam stuff was happening. So a lot of young people are wanting something. They know where they come from isn't right, but they don't necessarily know what is right, right? And right. so they're trying to choose something else. And in that choice, they choose an Indian culture, right? Now, that's not unique to the 60s. Plenty of gurus were, were grabbing their trip. But it's to go with my a whole identity thinking one thing's okay, and then to see the nuance of why it's just really not okay, it reminds me of what you've spoken to in your own testimony and story here is here, your parents are so rooted in very different yet countercultural movements to support their people at a time when the systems, the structures, the institutions, the government, the police, anything that was supposed to protect you was not viable. And so within your own communities, there were movements that came up. I think a lot mm -hmm. of listeners here wouldn't know that the Breakfast Club movement was started by Black Panthers in their own communities. They mm -hmm. started that safe passage to help children get to school from their home because police weren't doing these levels of protection for the Black community. And yet right. the rhetoric that the media spewed to white people at that time was that they were a um, racist organization that you know, the, they were militant, you know, all these things that were really just about human defense. Correct. Correct. And, you know, I find it ironic that we're now revisiting Roe versus Wade 
um, I find it ironic that we're just now passing an anti-lynching law, which didn't pass across all of the states, I might add. Right. What? What? I find it ironic that we're having to go back through some edits, some amendments, some additions to the Voting Rights Act. I find it absolutely abhorrible and amazing at the same time. It's very perplexing to me to wrap my brain around the fact that in this most recent election, and I might add, you know, it's going to be derived that, you know, people can clearly see my political choices, or it could just be like, you know, this House Speaker, a dynamic woman, historically, one of the best House Speakers we've ever had, because I'm a political junkie, has now stepped down following an attack on her husband. I just can't comprehend that we still in some form or fashion, do not know how to resolve ourselves, evolve ourselves into a different way of being as a collective people without violence, without anarchy. I don't know that we can have healthy discussions, but I will always push for those. I'll push for peace circles. I'll push for uncomfortable conversations. I'll step on my own toes to open my mouth to share my story because it's in the sharing of our personal stories that we begin to have compassion for others and understanding that some of the things that we've gone through, we're not in these silos that we think we are, you know, and appropriation is going to occur regardless, but I'm always confronted by the fact that no other race has been as significantly appropriated as much as the African-American people, the African people. Our continent, and it is my continent as well, since we're hyphenated now, most of us having no awareness of Africa itself, you know, yes, we'll visit or some of us will marry into that culture, but the cultures are vastly different, you know? And so when we go and travel to Africa, yes, we are welcome, you know, um, for the most part, like, you know, my brother, my sister, but when we go and we travel outside of our own continent, we're addressed as Americans first, not black people. And the disgust that, you know, is hailed widely across the globe for America, I can understand that. You know, sometimes we get a little check off because we happen to be black and those that are aware of our history and how we've been treated here in America have a little, you know, slice of empathy. But at the same time, you're American. Y'all got problems, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and until we, you know, I, don't, I wonder what, what happened when um, we had that song, you know, we are the world. What happened to us after that? What happened to us after 9-11 when I doubt that there was one black person, first responder or just general person helping that was like, I'm gonna search and only try to find the black people. I doubt that that happened. I doubt that a white person, maybe even having been prejudiced, maybe even having been racist, 
at that time of that horrific incident was like, I'm only going to try to save the white people. So those that jumped in to save, jumped in to do so because of their compassion and their willingness to try to help whoever they could because they could. And it's as simple as that. And even in the movies that have come out of it, outside of um, that particular day, they were all ashen people, you know, all looking the same because of the ash that had fallen, not necessarily being able to discern color. And very hopeful that out of that would emerge a new America. And it did for a time. And then we had this new wave, this new culture, this new going back to you're different, so you should be penalized and beat and lynched. You know, we still have lynchings in the 2000s. We still have Black people being um, caught up by, you know, a rural white group of what they're called to be rebels. You know, we still had a former leader of the free world talking about, you know, people marching through in Ku Klux Klan gear saying those were good people, you know. And that in this day and age that ropes can be put up on a on a tree and and that is not seen widely as a horrific, abusive thing in and of itself because it's a call, right? It's like a whistle call. And I don't know if the psyche of 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 I say the psyche of white people, like well-meaning white people, meaning people that haven't been looking at the history, want to just jump into this, we're all one, we're all people, why don't we just treat people as humans, but not looking at just the not too far history of so many of the stories you're sharing to really understand why, right? That, that there requires a level of acknowledgement and understanding and attention to what has happened before one can jump to the capacity. And I feel Black people and your story and other stories I've heard have metabolized so much of this compacted pain over time that you're at this, like, the only way we're going to get through this is through love and coming together in community and, and these much, much higher conversations, for lack of a better word. There's no amount of... I can jump back to George Floyd, right? The murder of George Floyd. This is a global phenomenon, a global movement, a global outcry of enough that occurs. And yet, and still, I challenge anyone, any Black person too, unless they're following it, any white person, any Asian, you know, any ethnicity to name the number of black men and women and children of color that have been murdered since George Floyd. It's a long, 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 long list, more than 40. Why? Why? Hmm. That's just in two years, you know? Um, 
I don't want this running list that continues to get put on quilts in murals. I don't want it to be okay. You know, I do okay. I do work for myself. I'm not out here being greedy, being a greedy, grab it up type of person, but I believe in reparations. Yes. And the fact that you stole, you took my father who wanted to be in my life was not about to become a derelict dad away from me. The fact that you tried to beat him, that you tried to starve him, that you refused to give him chemotherapy or treatment, you try to kill him over and over again, and yet he survived. The fact that I had to pay out of pocket for so much, so much, whether it was for my mom or my dad, and yet here I am, all I can think of is uh, Maya Angelou's, you know, and still I rise, but I deserve, I want my children, their children deserve to be paid. And my father, had he been treated while in prison, prostate cancer is not a deadly disease as much as some of the other types of cancer. There are men, you know, and I started a huge prostate cancer awareness campaign There's so many people that survive from prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. There is a likelihood that he could still be here. He could be able to see and play with his great-grandchildren. You know, shoot, he could just be able to be out and live. You know, he had speaking engagements, all of that. And so I don't want to necessarily go through the work that I need to go through to have justice. Because you know it takes mobilizing whiteness. And how how disgusting, right? You get how disgusting. There are videos out there of me speaking on move. There are videos with my father, especially the, the one right after his release, and him talking about that pain. And how he wanted to, you know, basically like just rip apart the world when he found out about the bombing. I myself remember I had just started school for the first time in my life. Um, There was like a pre, you know, school program or something before you go to um, regular school classes, you know, like the end of that summer kind of thing. And so I had only been there a week. I don't know anything about getting in a single file line and you got to raise your hand to go to the bathroom. I don't know that life. You know, I'm I'm like the original black version of Dora the Explorer, <laughs> you know, and then I'm, I'm just, I, I appreciate and respect authority, but you know, who are you to be telling me when I can pee? Yes. You know, so I want to, I got... And, and be corrected. Like I would say, I need to go urinate. You don't say that word. If you got to go pee, go pee. <laughs> and then, like I said, I'm taught our actual history. And so in one week, I had already gotten in trouble. We, I remember getting prepared for, they were going to do a play for Christopher Columbus Day, you know, so that's in three months. So we got to start in August. 
And they're like, you know, such and such is going to do on how he discovered America. He didn't discover America. And I am sent to the principal's office. So when I'm called to the principal's office for the fourth time in a week, I'm like, I didn't even do anything. I wasn't talking. I've been in line all day. I'm no. But they're calling me in there because my mom is like, I, I'm coming to get her right now. But they don't close the door. So I literally see my father surrendering. And I literally see him on the television in the principal's office being beaten. And I am going ballistic. And they are telling my mom, I need a psychologist or whatever. It's just some um, Negro being beaten. You know, that's what they get. That's what they blah, blah, blah. This is school. Unbelievable. And I'm like, that's my dad. And they don't believe me. Wow. Because this man got his hair all, you know, he don't have on any clothes. He just in jeans, those, those. They like gypsies. They like black gypsies. That is my father. Mm. So it's not clicking with the modernized Black American at that particular time. You know, it's not clicking with the Peel Hill teacher. Yeah. Because I guarantee you, whether it be the bombing or whatever, and I ask this sometimes when I'm doing lectures, um, especially at PWIs, you know, I ask them, how would you feel knowing that your mother, uh, your house had been bombed? And knowing that your mom is trying to escape and the police are shooting into the house so that she can't get out. How would you feel knowing that your mother has burned alive? Mm. How would you feel seeing a hand come out of a doorway like that only to escape back into smoke-filled clouds? Would you be able to stand it? Would you be able to watch it? And knowing, knowing that the systems that are supposed to protect are the ones actually causing and in, inflicting and, and this harm it. and right. containing it, not letting escape. Like it's 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 counterintuitive to what that rhetoric of what those people are supposed to do. Right. And, you know, let's go back to the January 6th storming of the Capitol. No conversation, whether it's in a beauty shop, Barbershop, fast food location, on the streets, retail stores. If you are Black, the same conversation over and over again. Different cities, I heard these conversations. I participated in them directly. Would the outcome be the same had that been a larger group, majority Black, because there were some Black people to storm the Capitol, too. Lots of us don't really talk about that. But the majority of the people were white, right? Would it have been the same outcome had they been Black? No. No. And time and again, during that lecture, whenever we get to that part of the conversation, it's refuted. Of course, it would have been the same. They're being charged. Let's start there. They're being charged. Let's Not go murdered. to... Not a bomb. Um, mass shooters. What black mass shooter do you know of that's in prison right now? Not one. 
not one. Not to justify the horror that they brought upon these communities, but I can count on more than one hand how many white male mass shooters are in prison. They're not even on death row. Mumia and self-defense, rather than losing his life on a gun that discharged. It's not like he pointed a gun and you know killed the person. The gun discharged, but he's charged and on death row. Now, granted, we've been able to stave that off for quite some time, but even the fact that, you know, executions just it's just so much wrong and rot in so many different parts of our system and yet we cannot downplay the beauty and magic of living in a democratic society albeit faulty because sometimes the justice system does work i never thought i would see my father outside of being behind bars and yet, attorney Brad Thompson, white male, young white male, he was able to be the one that ultimately successfully got it done. Indebted to him immensely. Hmm. I actually like and love that man. Not because he got my dad out. I just like the person that he is. He's a cool dude. You know? There are some Jewish attorneys that help support the um, case like them regardless before they ever had anything to do with my father some of my mom's very very good friends jewish jewish purposefully being raised by both of them like you have to learn and study all religions before you decide wherever you're going to be you know don't just do it because your grandma's southern baptist you know you might not you know assign yourself to that do what makes you feel right, but know that you're doing it because that's what you want to do. Not because of what we do, how we were raised, how our family historically has been raised. Learn, be aware, and then make conscious choices and decisions about what you want to follow, why you're following it. And you've got to always know your why. Don't just do it just because that's the way, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was raised to lead because the best leader knows how and when to follow and knows why they're doing different things. And then also knows when to kind of break off and take risk and be innovative and do something a little bit different. You know, so whether I make a really mean pound cake or I make a very <laughs> great strawberry pound cake, it's something that I do that's always gonna have the essence of me. And yet because of how I'm raised at different times, I might have assimilated a little bit and worn the mask because I got to be able to do that as well. So if I'm going through um, about where I can't get a job, let me take this uh, HBCU off my resume. Let me just put the degree because maybe if they see that it's a BA in political science without the affiliation of the university and I just put the state Virginia, hey, maybe this Confederate thinking person would be like, oh, Virginia, yeah, I'll hire them. Okay. And if that's what I have to do to find gainful employment, I'm going to do it. So, you know, there's an article called The Whitening of the Resume that I'm cited in by the New York Times. Mm. And I will say, I still keep in touch with that journalist. 
Asian American, you know, we formed an, a nice bond. I have people that I love that make my heart smile and sing like yourself that I automatically know you are not my color. You are not my race. And yet, and still, I don't subscribe to people that say I don't see color. Because if you're saying you don't see color, you don't see me. And you got me up, right? <laughs> However, that being said, I'm about the person. I'm about good vibes. You know, I'm, you know, one of the last surviving hippies, if you will, that didn't come, you know, of hippie age. And so from our very origin and our beginning, it's just been us as sisters, right? Mm -hmm. And no matter what length of time it is, it, it was some years, you know, but instantaneously just upon laying eyes upon each other, it's just like, oh, right? It gave you that warm, fuzzy feeling. And I miss having that, you know, in my life. And I missed instantly. It's like the whoosh back into that energy source, that field of, you know, sisterhood that I always felt around you. So cultural appropriation, white assumptions or not, you've just always just simply been my sister, you know? And thank you, Yvonne. I feel the same way. You know, I feel like the countercultural upbringing we had kind of created an early bond. And I know that, you know, having grown up in like a, in a, in a yoga community in, in mainstream Western culture, I'm already so different, right? So my mm -hmm. upbringing, I've related to people that have been different. So my mm -hmm. friends were always the foreign student coming in from Taiwan or you know, right. the person who doesn't <laughs> speak English. I was the friend who was the different friend. And my ethnicity, right, being a white woman, you know, I didn't think about myself like that because I didn't grow up with that kind of language around it. We grew up with so much other things because it's so countercultural. And this is why I so appreciate so much of the nuance you've brought to this conversation, because it's not black and white. And so much of the media American rhetoric since the early 1900s has been to attempt to make it this or that. And and it's a part of the divisional protocol that's needed to be able to have this level of divisive fear based systems at play as soon as you hear Yvonne talk about, look, we're not going to make that move because I know where those moves go, right? And so instead, she kind of brought in some nuance. We were going to make them apologize in public. We're going to do some, you know, it was internal moves that weren't as flashy externally, but maybe, just maybe it plants a seed where the cognitive dissonance of that deacon who's a white police officer speaking horrible abuses to anybody's humanity, much less a professional black man who happens to be your son. Mm -hmm. It was a chance to try to infiltrate from the inside out. And it's so much what I hear you speak to is it's not that the rage and the lividness isn't still in you. It's not that you're not aware that these institutions and systemic abuses not just have happened, but continue to happen in your family. 
and in your community and in your people and to all of us actually, but you speak to the nuance of what you can do about it in present day. You know, what's the best voice in the circumstances that I have even something like go get those benefits child like right. your dad <laughs> your dad was like without stability without economic security without certain things we can't actually create change anywhere Here and and there's not just one face of a revolutionary it doesn't just have to look like x right and it doesn't and so- have to be so vengeful it doesn't have to be so raging and I don't necessarily like saying I am a two-time breast cancer survivor. I am a two-time stroke survivor. I am a two-time domestic violence survivor. I don't like saying that. But a different way of looking at it is I am born of two revolutionaries. I have survived several, twice I can think of, attempts from my body betraying me because I allowed stress and rage and anger to overcome me. I had stress strokes. And yet I'm still here, you know? I've written two books, you know? What are my twos about? (laughs) I have two children, right? I have two degrees, right? Um, What is it that is getting my one plus one equals two from a message standpoint to resonate? And what am I able to do with this literal gift of life that I still have? And why and when And how does my purpose become fulfilled? You know how people are always, I'm searching for my purpose. You know, I'm not searching for my purpose. (laughs) I'm out here thriving, honey. I am not just trying to survive. I'm not just out here trying to be a widget, you know, a robot, a wombat. I am out here thriving. I am touching lives. I am out here living and being the personification of the pebble effect of love. I want people to feel and know and remember not just so much that they've been in my presence, but that there was a positive impact. And even if that person has met me in anger, in rage, with anarchy, maybe they learned a lesson on how not to, quote unquote, poke the bear of anyone, let alone you do not F with a black woman. Right. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. And I also want to add that what makes what you're saying so, so penetrating, for lack of a better word, is to go to places of love and compassion and unity and seeing people for the humanity of who they are, not just their ethnicity, you know, because your whole story, you, you could barricade yourself into any walls you want based on and in righteousness, based on mm-hmm. the things that have happened to you and your family and, and in this lifetime, let's just get clear. Um, mm-hmm. But the potency of speaking to what you're speaking around of the forgiveness, but it's more like 
it's through going through those, it's through the love and unity that we start breaking up this dissonance, all right? And in order to go there, one has to be willing to speak to things as they are. And that's what you do. You speak to the thing. So let's go back and whether it's your mother's early story, your father's early story, or just the different incidences of tragedy and betrayal and manipulation and systemic abuse and full-on right attacks through white systems and white people. And so the difference is a lot of white, well-meaning white people, and I think even a lot of other cultured people want to go for we're all one it's all love, it's all peace, we should really just work together, but they're not willing to speak to the root systems that are rotting. Right. So you can't judge to, to the love, you can't judge to the love without actually looking at the roots that are rotting. That is, that's a level of authenticity that, you know, collectively and stereotypically we Um, as people don't necessarily possess, you know, we're in a very high show me state of being, so to speak. So it's, it's a lot of look at me, look at me, look at me. And then a lot of acknowledge me. And then a lot of so that I can be a star, or so that I can matter is really kind of where that comes from. Mm. This is not to take away from any Instagram, IG, you know, celebs, any TikTok stars. It's it's not that. It is how did we get here culturally, you know, because we have these pockets of cultures within this collective culture of look at me, look at me, look at me, you know? And I'm always trying to figure out how do I coexist in a society that I don't necessarily subscribe to, you know, Um, I'm on social media. We started out, you know, this conversation with that. Catch me at your life, Y-O-R-R-L-I-F-E across all social media platforms. Um, But at the same time, I just don't like being out there like that. I don't like telling my personal story. And so it's a discipline, it's a patience, and it's a push to be that publicly authentic and vulnerable that gets me there. Mm. And even now, several times during this conversation, there's a little girl in me that is kind of like, cut the cord, cut the cord, figuratively, you know? And it always goes back to that place and point of birth because every time I feel that feeling or that, you know, fight or flight feeling inside, I know that it is that little girl that is fearful versus being fearsome. And so I choose to step into being fearsome and fearless in the midst of that fear of judgment, potentially. And I choose to, in the moment, in the millisecond, reaffirm my heart, myself, my love, my beauty, my kindness, my compassion, and know that it may or may not touch at least one person through that vulnerability. And if I can touch 
one person just by telling it like it is through this is what happened to me. This is my story. This is my family. Maybe somebody else would be able to share their own personal story. And then that other person they're sharing with would share theirs. You know, some of us have our most compelling conversations with complete strangers, mostly because we know let's take somebody like on a flight or something. We, you know, talk to our seatmate sometimes. We'll never see that person again, you know? So we're so much more open than we typically are with our loved ones, you know? Um, Oftentimes, sometimes we're telling our girlfriends or our guy friends stuff that we wouldn't even share with our mate. You know, we're such a choose to be secretive individuals. Or you, or, you know, culturally, you know, we know, like, don't you know, air your dirty laundry, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We talk yeah. culturally How's... about uncle so-and-so, girl, he just crazy in the head. But we don't talk about him being a pedophile. We don't talk about the fact that, you know, he is a war veteran that came back kind of, you know, not quite there. We just say he's messed up in the head. We don't talk about the importance of mental health, the importance of being aware of mental illness, being diagnosed, having the support that medication allows to function or the lack thereof and the stigma that ultimately leads to suicide. We have our highest rates of suicides among young people since the onset of the pandemic. Highest rates of suicide in, you know, uh, formalized sports. We don't talk or do enough about, you know, priests that have abused, you know, young boys. We don't talk enough about, you know, white collar crimes any much as more as we talk about, you know, the epidemic on drugs. You know, we're all the way back to the days of the Reagans and say no to drugs, but we're not talking about our seniors that are full on drug addicts due to opioid abuse, or as I just recently witnessed, um, passing pills to each other. Like, did you get this pill? What pill you got? And, And passing off pills. We do not talk about the fatigue that first responders have from the pandemic. We don't talk about the cultural differences. You know, they come out in ads on get vaccinated, get boosted, but we're not talking about prematurity or maternal health concerns or the fact that historically and culturally, all you all do is pick and prod as if we are a whole different species. So no, we're not about to be trusting getting vaccinated or boosted or whatever, because we're we're not a science project. And so, yes, we're going to continue to have multiple modalities and different diseases and things that we just gone ahead and die from, even if we have a Black doctor, because you part of them now. Cause, because because of the whiteness assimilation yes. process to get to those levels, whether it's an yes. attorney or a doctor or a political figure or whatever. Yes. And because the quote unquote days of the world are never criminalized for these acts, you know, there's not one police officer 
one guard in the prison system, one doctor that refused medical treatment that's going to be tried and sentenced for anything, you know? It, there's not, it's not happening. But pebble effect occurs because now you have some white officers that committed murder on black people, black children being tried and sentenced. Very few, but it's happening, right? Um, that's what I call a pebble effect of justice. And so some things that I'd be like, never ever would I ever see it, never ever does not come into my vocabulary as much because I have to hold and claim and manifest into the universe the possibility of yes and yes this day will come where my circle my band of american melting pot people will change the world you know yes i can actually have an impact that is positive and meaningful not in a way that is you know a national memorial or whatever i'm not looking for that Right. But in a way that I know I've mattered and because I lived and mattered, others matter and knew they mattered too, you know. Um, Standing for something else, being an example of that vulnerability and truth telling yes. simultaneously. Yes. yes. Being a, a living, this pebble effect where you're a living example of it and the ripple effect happens over time. And you see the impact over time, but it's not necessarily flashy. Right, right. Because it's never about what's on display. And if and when it is, um, that display is for a purposeful end and an outcome and a reasoning. Mm -hmm. So those times that I have been public and on, you know, national news and, and you know, cited articles, it's because it's necessary. People need to know that, domestic political factions happen that harm us, you know, um, when that they're not a thing of like ancient past folks, they're no, very much and, present you know, day. Yeah. We talk about slavery a lot and, you know, those, um, generational wounds that exist, but, you know, it's a lot of younger people that are like, okay, what's slavery got to do with me enough already with the slavery thing. And, we can't have that, you know? We just can't allow it. And with so much anti-Semitic conversation going on now, I don't know that there is a time where we can talk about the existence of the Holocaust or not when that community, that faction of people collectively will rise up and galvanize and shut it down. You are not going to discount the Holocaust. You cannot. But you also cannot discount slavery. slavery. And yet here we are, the continuance of that, the ongoing, just, you know, diminishing of our collective cultural experience, those collective wounds. There's not been one person that has ever gone to pass by 
you know, Elmina Castle that has not felt and smelled the metal and iron of that shed blood. And I don't mean that metaphorically, it is there in the walls, mm. the echoes even. And anyone that has a spiritual bone in their body, again, regardless of your religion or denomination or you know what region of the world you come from, you cannot stand on that soil and feel something. Mm. Or you can. And that also lets me know, you're not for me. You're mm. not even for me to be in the same space. Mm. You know, I remember being with someone uh, when I was traveling that, you know, it's like, you know, they got what they deserve. That kind of person, I want to be next to them because at least that person has let me know exactly who they are. I can appreciate that. We don't agree, of course, but you're not going to get any anger from me because you don't even deserve that kind of leveling up of, you know, me having that kind of energy and people just forget that you know some form of hate always emanates from a place of love to begin with you're taught that you know you don't just come out hating anything or people you might dislike a certain food or you might be turned off by someone but you know I have people we learn this we learn it from our environment you don't just come in that way and and it, it reminds me of what you spoke to when you said when you noticed your own cognitive dissonance around the police, like, huh, why do I think this way? And it was from the experience of what you knew your parents went through, but it wasn't through your personal experience. And, and it wasn't what they taught me either. It wasn't. And that's interesting when you said that they didn't teach you that, but it was you extending your empathy to knowing what they went through, but it wasn't necessarily the verbiage they gave you. Not at all. Not and that all. is so fascinating because I, I think that is a really big takeaway for white people in this conversation of how do you begin to see what you've been trained not to see for so long? Right. And it can be emotional to start to see like, holy moly, how have I gone my whole life and not ever seen what's been in plain sight the whole time? Right. A, that's a part of systemic abuse, right? Is that we're trained that way. But B, it's a part of what it means to recognize that what you think you believe and what you're actually acting out are not the same. And then we can choose something else. So in that moment, you did, you're like, huh, this isn't, where am I in here? And so that gave you the indicator that you should take that job. You leaned into the fear or the thing that your mind was saying you could never do. And that gave you the opening into a whole new expanded version of yourself and your work in the world. Right. I have two very short, funny stories. So um, way back in the day, Million Man March, remember that? Right. I do indeed. I felt very strongly that my husband at the time should go, right? Um, We were in our church system at the time and different religions, because it was organized, you know, Minister Lewis, Farrakhan, Nation of Islam. And so because it was organized by that person, you know, the pastor was like, "Mm -mm, you know, that's not what we should be doing, blah, blah, blah. So my husband at the time was like, "Mm -mm, pastor said no. And I'm like, this is, we will never, ever see this historic moment again for the first time in our lifetime. You're going. A million man march for us? No, you're going. I'm, you know, I'm talking about Selma and this and that. And so the 
four days before the Million Man March, the pastor changed his tone and was like, so it was that Sunday and the Million Man March was happening that week. So he's like, you should go to the Million Man March. I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? So I was trying to get my husband to, you know, hey, let's get on a bus, plane, what we got to do to get there. I ain't going, right? And didn't go. And so years later, when it's the Million Women March, my daughter was three months old. Um, that was in October 97. And he was adamant. Um, this is my firstborn at that. So, you know, new parents, we don't know what we're doing, right? And we're late 20s. He's in his 30s at the time, but I'm late 20s. And so I remember my mom, who had not yet seen my daughter, um, she was living in South Carolina at the time. She was like, I'm going to the Million Women March. I'm like, I'm going too. She was like, no, you're not. And I'm like, well, how are you going to go there before you come here and see your own grandchild? You've never seen her in person. Like, what, what the world? And the killer part is she had, um, she was doing a training. This is like during landmark time um, with an organization called Phoenix 2000. She was doing one of those trainings in Wisconsin when I had her. So she, I thought she just was being, my mom was a different breed and not coming. But I found out years, years later, she was trying to win a helicopter to get there, to be there for the birds, everything. But we just never talked about it. So anyway, Against my husband's wishes, against my mother's wishes, I secretly buy a ticket, right? And I take my brand new newborn three-month-old baby to Philadelphia. I don't tell anybody but my best friend, my college roommate at the time, um, you know, she lived in Philly. So I was like, we can't tell anybody. Plus, I'm thinking it's a million women march. And she's like, well, didn't you say your mom was gone? I'm like, it's going to be a million women. I'm not going to see my mom. Not 20 minutes in there, I make my way to the front of the stage and who do I run into but my mom and one of our cousins. And the initial, she just burst into tears because I had my baby in one of those, you know, sacks, whatever, my baby Niall. And she was just like, oh my God, my mom was not like a sappy kind of person. And so after we hug, because I cannot believe I've run into her out of all of these women, but I couldn't see, it was too many people. I didn't want anybody bumping my baby. So I made myself around. One of the organizer sisters recognized me as Delbert or Africa's daughter, right? She was like, we got a member of the move. Like, well, baby, come here. And who is this? I'm like, this is my child. This is Delbert Africa's granddaughter, everybody. So that's how it came. But on my way to the stage, I run into my mom. And another lady who was about to speak was um, from the Black Panther Party um, in Philly. And she ran and got Yvonne King, who was my mom's best friend way back in the day when I was born. And so they're meeting up and crying. It was just very surreal, real powerful. When I tell you my mother cussed me out, like, you know, they're like, come up on stage. And she was like, she's not going anywhere. My mama cussed me out. Like, I told you not to come. It's too many people. People don't cover their mouths when they coughing. Think about when the Million Man Woman March was, right? And where's your husband? And blah, 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 blah. So I leave that night instead of staying the entire, you know, weekend because the wrath of my mother, I don't want to experience it. I come back home. <laughs> then I got to listen to my husband and, we got to take my baby to the doctor because that's too many, whatever. The baby's fine. 
you know, because I'm very village oriented. Like they're not going to do anything but wildly protect me because I have a, a brand new baby on me, right? And so I have this poster of that Million Women March signed by Rita Marley, signed wow. by Maya Angelou, what? signed by the organizers, wow. signed by my mama wow. to this day in my home. Tingles. When my daughter looks at it she remembers my mom wanted me to experience this too right and the power of that when my mom passed away she had the poster and my mom gave most of her possessions to my ex-husband at the time because you know just traveling back and forth the kids will have them either way and then whatever else it is, you'll get if, if something should ever happen to me. But of course, we never expected her to die so young, right? And to come across and look at that frame poster, my mom slept in her upper bedroom, which is like right off the balcony, but it's the smallest bedroom in the house. So I used to tease her like, why are you sleeping in the slave quarters? You know, because <laughs> that's technically what it was where the, the help would stay. And it wasn't until I did a um, Yoruba ritual and went through and did the three days and then woke up on the third day in the same bed that she had passed in and looked up and you can see the mountains um, juxtaposed against Lake Chapula, uh, Chalupa rather. And then you can see the sunrise. It is the most beautiful sunrise I've ever seen, only akin to that of Ghana. Mm. And only then did I notice that on her patio, was that poster that I never, ever knew she had. I never knew she had it. Mm. And when I tell you the memories and the things that come back and to have my ex-husband say to me when I brought different things you know, back, um, he's like, well, I wish I would have had that same poster you know, for my march. And you were right, I should have gone because he came into his cultural awareness differently you know, long after, you Later. know, he went through his ages and stages. And to this day, to know that I stand on that exposure, that opportunity to be and coexist with other women, but for the sole point of uplifting the Black woman and supporting mm -hmm. each other, it carries me now when I see, you know, reality TV shows that I don't necessarily watch where they're so quick to be jumping across tables and hurling drinks because, there's a whole society, a whole group of people now that only see us through that lens and don't see us through the lens of the historic Million Woman March. They don't see us in our sister circles when we're comfor comforting each other, you know, at the passing of a loved one. You know, I have a sorority sister that just had to turn off life support for her sophomore college son that was in a bad car accident. Um, and we are galvanizing. I have cards, you see flowers behind me because my girlfriends wanted to make sure that I was protected and, and not feeling unsafe in a place where random men were just coming in and out of my room at the rehab place, right? And they're like, we can't leave you here, I'm sorry. You're gonna have to figure out a different way to do your therapy. I am surrounded by African art, um, 
artists who, when I bought that artwork, not realizing I'm making really a, a big investment that have now become commissioned artists at no less than 25,000 to start for pieces that I might've paid 2,000 for, right? And I'm also surrounded by gifts that have come from people from around the world of different ethnicities. So I have a blend from African art to Moroccan to Indian to Asian art in my home that makes me feel like home. And it matters a lot and a great deal to me. So when and if I'm ever able to get another passport again, I know I have a home in Dubai. You know, I have a home in Singapore. I have a home in Accra. I have a home in Orange Walk, Belize. You know, I have homes, plural, because I have love and extended love to people across the globe or because people loved and supported my father or because people knew my mother. And so these tracks that we make based on our lineage and our generations and our behaviors and actions, they really do make a whole difference in our lives and the lives of others. So beautiful, Yvonne. There's just so much packed in what you just shared. And one of the things is the cultural awareness. There is awareness that we can bring to our lives, to ourselves and to each other that is beyond race. It, it looks into the culture and the humanity of each other. And to understand the complexity of this level of conversation when we talk about whiteness, it's to move beyond the color coding that is a part of the systems that we're talking about. And mm -hmm. it requires a cultural awareness, a, a, a willingness to look at some of the historical roots of where did color coding come from? And then how has culture bred out of that? And then what was culture like before that? And we have to do that historical research. What I know from my friends is many, many, many families of culture. And like, as you spoke of your lineage, you have a lot of historical roots because you come up learning a lot of those stories. And yet some of us might not, you know, my parents mm -hmm. cut off from their families and joined this Indian culture. So I'm one generation removed from really understanding my history. But mm -hmm. now I get to dig into my roots and look about my, my Jewish history and look at right. what my parents were running from. That's a part of what it means to lean into this conversation, folks, is it's looking at what did our family history really do versus what we were told they did. What is the real history when you said you were in public school as a child, Yvonne, and then you said, but I was taught real history. There, that's a cognitive dissonant moment, right? Where yes. it's like, whoa, I was taught this because of the environment I come from. And yet this is what I'm being taught over here. How come it's different? To start right. to fill that gap, that's called cultural awareness, people. You know, yeah. to, to, for your we still to have, have these banned books, you know, books that yeah. you can't. Exactly. <laughs> and people want to come into that conversation calling it CRT. Like, I'm not even calling it that. That this is a no. new, new rhetoric on a very old play that has been in play for a very long time. So like, let's right. not even give it power by naming it this new thing they're calling it, because this is not new. At all. 
at all. And, and it's why I love what you're bringing to this conversation. And it's what I hope listeners are taking away is that in order for us to move towards the love that we are, in order for us to see each other in our humanity, we have to see the color code. We have to see the systems that have been in place purposely to create division. So, you know, Yvonne spoke to, she didn't look at me as somebody who wouldn't be non-aware as a white person. It's not like I didn't think about myself as white. Of course, I knew that, which is a part of cultural awareness. I didn't have black friends acting like I'm not white, but I had a cultural upbringing that didn't make me relate to my whiteness. And that in and of itself is a problem because if I'm not relating to historically who I am in my own lineage, I can't come into this conversation properly or support my friends who might be in a movement that I'm not a part of, but I can speak to and I can add my voice to it. So that simple thing you said around loving, having friends of all ethnicities and yet those people don't say to me, I don't see your color because that's abusive. That's, that's, that is a form of, of extraction that says, I don't see who you are. I don't see your humanity. I don't see your history. I don't it's see a form of being blissfully aloof. Mm. And I will say a lot of conscious white people don't even know that they don't that even realize correct. they're being blissfully aloof they think they're saying what you just said around i have friends of many cultures ethnicity they think they're saying that but they're being blissfully aloof right to say that you don't see color you do not see me that's right you know um the assumption I had this happen to me recently. I was in uh, Texas for um, the Bears Chicago game, right? For me, I stopped to get, uh, you know, some McDonald's just to get a quick snack before going to tailgate. And so I ended up just sitting to kind of detach from the throngs of people that were there. Um, which I found ironic in and of itself. I'm going for the purpose of being in the crowds of people, but it was too many people. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I just detached to go sit down for a little bit. And I'm sitting next to a mom and her daughter that are speaking Spanish. I don't have any napkins. And so I want to get some napkins, right? But they had a stack of them and I'm sitting right by them. And so because I want to practice my Spanish, I asked them if I can have a napkin in Spanish. The mom gets offended because she was like, you think I can't speak English? I speak English. And so as I'm trying to tell her like, no, it's just because I overheard you all speaking in Spanish anyway. And I'm always trying to practice my Spanish, you know, and I'm still speaking in Spanish, mind you, I'm just giving the English version. Then I wanted to kind of test it out because it's been a long time and I used to be fluent, but you know, I don't use it, I lose it. I'm, we're talking over each other and she ends up slamming the table and yells out, I am not a migrant worker. I'm like, and in English, then I say, I am so sorry. You know, I I definitely was not trying to imply that or didn't even think about whether you spoke 
English or not. I just wanted to simply test my Spanish and did not mean to offend. I felt right about my intention. I felt right about her outburst that she wasn't a migrant worker because it spoke to whatever she's been experiencing from a cultural perspective is reality. Yeah. It is her reality. And I get to experience it from the outskirt, just from that one outburst. And it wasn't until I got home and had more reflection and realized how that may have been disrespectful to her and her daughter to just instantly start speaking in Spanish and not necessarily taking into account or even at any given point in time until I reflected how that might've just been disrespectful and not appropriate. But I likened it to, I get very offended when I'm in the doctor's office and they tell me that they're gonna check my sugar. Do they tell you that? Have you ever they, heard they're, that? They're only saying that because you're black. Right. Because so, it's assumed that Black people have diabetes? No, it's assumed that not only do we have diabetes, but like we're not going to understand, you're going to check my diabetes. Oh, that they say is sugar. Oh. Interesting. Because you've never had that test, have you? Has not your doctor or anybody ever said, let me check your sugar? No. In your whole entire life? Well, I'm not the best person to ask because I haven't gone to that many doctors in my life. It doesn't my, matter. God. But Anytime. in general, I've only right. had blood pressure. Too. I've never, ever heard terminology of sugar except around Black people. Right. So that's one example. The other is I did a, I was just speaking on this lecture that I most recently did at a PWI. Um, part of it is um, it, it is the art of being African in Black America, right? That's the topic. But the person that introduces me, like you know how you introduced me to everyone today, the person that introduces me white is like, y'all gotta see what's up with this one, this chick, this she a bad B-boy, blah, 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 blah. That's, that's how they're, they're saying it. And I am livid. But I don't know that this person, and I, I mean, when I say I am livid, you do not, don't be talking to black slang around me like that. That is just, and I, I, I lead in with the inappropriateness of it. Now, mind you, this is before I have this most recent incident with this uh, Latina woman. And so the person is so apologetic. Mm. But I'm thinking they're going to change their tone and their vernacular. But that's actually how that person talks because Regularly. they're raised in Kentucky and they're raised around a Black community. So their conversation, their tone, it sounds like the environment that they're raised in. 
And then one of their friends, because it was a student, one of their friends gets up like, no, we just, we, this is how we talk. This is how we do. Like, ain't nobody trying to da, 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 da. And I'm thinking like, oh my God, it's the same thing from when I was a kid and the black kids are like, stop talking white. And I'm like, I'm not talking white. I'm speaking the King's English because that's how I'm raised at home. <laughs> like, you yes. speak the King's English in here. You have to enunciate. You will have a proper vocabulary and vernacular. Nobody is around in a Black community, in a Black hood, talking about vernacular. I guarantee you that. Right. But I'm also raised based on my own environment as well, because I grew up in the hood, right? Back to asking to urinate versus pee, right? Right. <laughs> so it's kind of like, oh, I get it. And so the most minor of incidences and incidents and the most intentional from all of us, white people, black people, any people. Anywhere you're raised, someone doesn't know your story by looking at you, right? So your class. And more than likely, it's our environment over and above our ethnicity that determines our way of being in the world. Yes. Speech, patterns, behavior, thinking, even the way you see the world, the lens in which you look at. If you are a black person that grew up, let's say you're black and white and you grew up around all white people, their vernacular is going to be very white stream American, even if their color looks different. Right. You know, and then you have to go into region, you know, region Mm -hmm. accents, regional accents. You talk a little bit different, you know, Minnesota versus Chicago, but they're both the Midwest. But, you know, we have a different kind of twang, kind of, so to speak. And so that's where that compassion comes from for like that police officer. He grew up in rural Illinois in a very you know, red area, so to speak, even though it's on the outskirts, you know, and there are less than 2% Black people in that particular area that my son was in. You don't really know anything, but scary Black people and scary Black criminals or whatever you've what seen you on the media. On right? a, I was whatever about to say, based on what you see on the news, because your environment, you don't interact with us enough culturally. You know, you right. know what I mean? And, and so, their parents and whatever their parents taught them, which was based on whatever media rhetoric right. they got. And then got. their parents, yep. you know, very interesting. Because he was actually going down there to do some, you know, like research on these wells, because they're going to start building wells in um, Ghana. You know, so this particular area, they're still off of, you know, a well-based system. So it was a comparative to the well-based system we had in Crete at the time where I was living, Mm -hmm. uh, which is unincorporated Crete. And then it was also to look at the difference between incorporated municipalities versus unincorporated, you know, because we still have many unincorporated um, municipalities, which is very, very different than, you know, how we live. And mm-hmm. so with purpose, I moved to unincorporated Crete. And so that's just outside of the Chicago area um, and very, very different than two miles over incorporated Crete, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's no public anything, no public fire system, police, you know, none of that, you know, we're borrowed from the incorporated side and, you know, we pay for that through our taxes, but you know, our water still kind of runs yellow brownish and it's big land. So having grown up 
with a farm in Michigan and blueberry patches and you know cows and all of that I'm used to sewer well water living and so I had to explain that to my ex-husband and my son because they're filled with you know that rage that I know all too well and sure. I had to remind them I know the anger and don't for one second think that because I'm being very calm because sometimes the scariest person is the angry person in their calmness. Mm. Mm. But what we will not do is a tit for tat and reminded them, which is why I share with you, you know, how I'm raised and having never had a childhood fight. This is why I don't do vengeful, physical kinds of related things because I don't have a filter and I have no stop gap, none. So I never want to see that come to fruition. And the only time I could see it is if somebody is trying to bring harm to one of my children, but that was before they were grown mm. and kind of like how I'm raised by my parents. Once you're grown, you're on your own. I'm here mm. to nurture and coach, but I'm no longer in the business of raising you. That's been done. Mm. And so, yes, I would support them or, you know, try to defend them, but nothing in my whole aura right now unless I'm attacked physically will compel me to bring harm to another person physically, you know, and that'll just be from a means of survival because I'm going to use what I know about the law. I'm going to use my network to work the system so that justice is done rather than harm for harm. Or as they say, you know, colloquially in the Bible, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I love my teeth. I have a wonderful smile. Yes. I'm not trying to, you know, <laughs> you do. You do eye have a for eye, smile. tooth for tooth. But, you know, I'm like, I'm nobody's doing that. Like, come on, enough already. Because to what end? You know, it's the gang related mentality. You shot my, shot and killed my brother in this particular organized system. So now we coming for you and your mom and your kids like you know what what did that child do to your gang system nothing they didn't they didn't uproot the corner that you trying to command over and then I'm so bold to be like you don't get my corner you don't get my anything you don't decide that you own this public walkway and I'm bold and bad and big enough to be like I'm not subscribing to that you right. know I've been able to have very intimate conversations with gang leaders and negotiate from an organizing and humane perspective, you know, competing factions and gangs to stand down. I need this month, this week to manage this. Let let these kids have safe passage, you know. Well, to have the parents you had, the, the upbringing you did to, to witness from the inside out, just what level of dis, uh, of breaking apart these systems can do, right? To a human, to a person, to your own father, to your own mother in, in her own internal battles, right? These, these, these traumas that never get to go out. Um, that's what I'm hearing and what you're sharing is like, to what end, right? And one thing that comes to mind, like whether it's the Nation of Islam or whether it's the Black Panthers or whatever Black organization is always deemed as this violent organization, when in reality, these organizations 
weren't violent. They were actually protective. They were saying, well, if you aren't going to protect our people, we're going to protect our people. If you're not going to provide for our people, we're going to create our own organization that starts to do this. And yet the rhetoric that a lot of white people have heard about those organizations is, is that they've been violent towards. And I, I want you to really hear what Yvonne is saying here. It's like from the inside out, because of her own lived experience, she's choosing new ways to move to have peace. Mm-hmm. It's not discounting that white America and whiteness and these systems still got so much work to do because they're infiltrated with, with this same disparity, with these same rotted root systems that her father went to prison for and, and lived out most of his life behind bars and raising her because those systems are still at play. And forget, forget the whole Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. Forget that, you know, competitiveness. Forget the Kanye West conversation, the Kyrie Irving conversation. Notwithstanding ongoing conversations about slavery and reparations, put all of those in the parking lot, put them aside, so to speak. There's not one person of a different ethnicity, ethnicity rather, that understands driving while Black. You might empathize with us, but you've never experienced it. Having been a employee of the police department, coming home from a very, very late night, three something in the morning on Balboa and Wabash, I will never, ever forget it. My phone falls. I'm at a red light. It's just my car on the street. And as I'm coming up from picking my phone up, it's cops on bikes on either side of my car yelling at me to get out of the car. I'm looking like the hell, like I just bent down the thing. I rolled down my window, crack it. Like what, what is going to get the F out of the car? It's a black cop. It's a white cop. The black cop is the one that's talking to me, the black man. I'm like, for what? Before I know it, it's other cars pulling up. I am being literally yanked through my blazer truck window. Thrown to the ground, handcuffed, put in the back of a truck, taken to 18th Street, handcuffed to the side of a thing all before I can figure out what in the hell is going on. I'm like, I work for the police department. This is my number. I'm being told to shut the F up, B. This is while I am gainfully employed. I am working as the mayor's press liaison. I'm like, call the superintendent, call my lawyer. Like, what are y'all, what is happening? a white shirt, i.e. a sergeant comes through. He was like, you fit the description of a black male that robbed a store and stole a car. But you're talking to me. You know I'm not no black male with locks. And I'm like, so, and then because of where we are, we're not in the same LGBTQ 
supportive environment at that particular time. So he's going to swear up and down that I'm potentially transgender and changing my voice. You're kidding. But, you know, whatever the cup size of my breasts are, they still protrude out. Okay. So I'm like, you, I'm not, y'all, y'all do funny things, blah, blah, blah. So I'm there again, this experience prior to the one that my son experienced, I'm there for hours. You don't even let me have a phone call. I, and guru, when I tell you, I am snapping out. Mouth just blah, like I am right. And that time I am raging. <laughs> A lieutenant finally comes and he was like, what's up with the banshee over there? Because I am screaming like a banshee. You know, that's where the term comes from culturally back in our uh, old village in Africa. So he was like, oh, some bee trying to act like she worked for the department, some, some crazy number because our numbers are different the higher up you go, you know, or the more... Um, access you have right mm -hmm. he's and so the lieutenant starts laughing and he was like what kind of number does she give he doesn't get to the third one before his eyes look like your eyes slams that door they come out he comes back he has every last person that had any kind of interaction with me lined up including the sergeant uncover you all will apologize on the spot and it's a mix. It's a mix of white and black. One is like, I'm apologizing to that B, right? But of course, I mean, they're saying it. I'm not saying it. He said, you're going you gonna to apologize. That's all I can say. He's talking to the sergeant, uncover immediately. They come and they uncuff me. And when I say I am like, I am just, that's a big old glower. Like, oh, Soon as I'm on cuff, one of the security detail, um, secret service detail comes in, takes me, puts me in a um, limo, but takes me home. Mm. You know, one of the black vehicles. It's like a, you know, the, yeah, the, the dark whatever. Yeah. Mm. So takes me home. He's like, okay, if if they can fix the car, they're gonna fix the car. Um, you know, and my car comes back better than it was. It's clean. The window's fixed. Um, I had a couple of dents in there with the used car at the time. It's everything. It's just, it's, it's hooked up, right? Wow. The lieutenant is like, what's going to happen? That time, that time, you know, we have a meeting with the superintendent, the lieutenant, um, IED, the mayor, mayor's there. One of the commissioners is there. They're like, what are we doing? And so the mayor was like, what are we doing? I said, I want everybody fired. Every last one of them. Mm. Because had they listened and just typed the number into the system, or had they fully booked me, or how about this? Had you read me my Miranda rights, had you not pulled me out of my car by my hair, mm. had you not had the gall to say to my face, 
I'm in business clothes. I might have on a pantsuit, but I'm still like, part of me is just feeling from a, you know, a colloquial perspective. Like you see my titties, like what is wrong with you? I got babies at home. What were you doing out by yourself at night? This is not the 1950s. A woman can be out by herself at three something. Plus I'm coming from work. I'm coming from news affairs, from headquarters. Mm. Then why are you down here at Balbo and whatever? Cause I had to come get my car out the parking garage. Cause I started my day down here. Those are officers. You do not deserve the shield, the badge. I don't want you on rank over anybody. I do not want you being so hardened by what you see. Cause I know what you see. Cause I'm in the streets with you. I might not be law enforcing law, but I'm covering it. I know what you're seeing. I know you just pulled this young baby with her everything folded out of a dumpster, you know? I know you just dealt with this woman that was raped by her boyfriend, you know, who came back and I know all of these things, but you're not going to treat me like this. And you definitely not about to treat another citizen like that. Once you come off of your little one week suspension with pay, that's the other mm -hmm. thing. You can be suspended or removed from your duties and still get paid. Who mm -hmm. wouldn't want to be sitting home watching the game being paid? It's that kind of thing that is just enraging, yes. but I cannot assign it to the police force in its entirety, stereotypically. I can't assign it to the white police officer. I can't assign it to the black male police officer because he and of himself is experiencing discrimination within the workforce. The white male that is under the black male that has higher rank is experiencing a form of jealousy because he's been on the force longer and here this young whatever, whatever come in thinking he's the stuff and he black, he don't know nothing. Or the sergeant that's so indoctrinated in his Irish heritage and privilege that he doesn't even take the time to do anything, let alone type my number into that portal. Had any one of them, at least, you don't have to listen to me. And I probably wouldn't have listened to me either, to be frank. Because once I went off, I started going crazy. You know, nobody's going to listen to somebody screaming and hollering and cussing at the top of their lungs. And you've I already been pulled out of your car and you've been dragged <laughs> down to a thing. So let's just. While I'm working all, for the police right, department. Let's just give all that rage space because it, it, it that that banshee energy needed out. And so, you know, as we say in our communities, like you, you about to make all of my blackness come out, <laughs> right? And so there are different points in time in this conversation where somebody out there listening, whether they want to own it or admit it or not, they're like, she sounds so proper, professional. She doesn't learn it. black. Right, learn it. In their mind. <laughs> There's another part that as if they're listening this long, and we hope everyone is, of course, they're like, see, I knew it. They're going to have Black. That Black coming out. Black is not a language. It is not a tone. It is not just our slang because y'all got your own words and all of that kind of customs and everything with your pumpkin pies versus my sweet potato pie, you know, with your raisins and the yams and stuff like that versus no raisins, whatever that extra stuff is that you put in a potato salad and the tuna, whatever that we do not, right? 
all of that. We all have our own internal customs. It is not wrong. It is not bad. It may be teased or joked, but is by no means to offend on either side. Because truth be told, this Black woman loves sweet potato pie. And I love pumpkin pie. <laughs> Serve it up to me. Okay. I also love bean pie. Okay. I just, I'm a sweet person. I like it. So I put raisins and cranberries in some of my food. Okay. So this whole, they do that from a uh, perspective. Any one person, I don't care what color you are, take your uh which is your lack of exposure, your lack of awareness, your lack of knowledge, your lack of research, your lack of trusting, your lack of trying, and go sit in a corner somewhere. Because I'm out here, I'm eating shark and alligator just because even though I don't eat beef or pork, and that's my choice, right? I'm mostly a pescatarian, but I want to try everything. And yes, I love calamari. And some certain things when I run across, you know, our urban youth, our unexposed youth, those that have come and been raised in disinvested communities, you will learn how to set a table properly. You're going to learn how to use all nine of these utensils, even though we know we perfectly fine with a plastic fork. You're going to know the difference between a drinking glass, a wine glass, an orange juice glass, all of that. Because I want you to be able to be in and about the world, whether you ever get to Europe or not, or Asia or not, I want you to be aware of their custom so that you don't offend and you're leading with your heart. Take your shoes off. Yes, bow. You're not bowing down. Or if you're in a certain region, yes, bow down if you need to. Whatever it is that you're doing, but don't do it or not do it just because somebody else told you not to, period. Because I'm out here, I can do whatever I want. I can change the world and I'm yes. definitely out here leading with love, period. Yes. Don't bring your, uh, I love that. You don't know? bring your, like just uh, because, yeah, here. just because you don't understand the culture doesn't mean it's an, uh, it just means no. you're ignorant to what is happening in front. Right. And we aren't, we aren't often taught cross-cultural communications, much less communications within our own same culture. So right. to expand, to really not bring your, uh, but rather bring bring your curiosity, ask ask better questions, but not with a tonality of uh behind it. Like, why do you do that? Like, right. that's not curious. And stupidity that's not is very different than ignorance, you yes. know? So choose, right? Yes. Because yes. once you know, you know. And then, you know, I think most of us can find value and find parts of compassion in knowing that we don't know everything. And, and that we just haven't been exposed. We haven't been exposed to so many things. So how would we know? And this is a part of the experience of being in a body and, and being in a life, right? It's right. to learn, like you saying, you know, shark or calamari. Like, I don't know the nuance of that, but I'm guessing within your own community, some of these things aren't accepted. And so you're branching out and trying things that maybe other people wouldn't. Right. We'll probably, we'll, we'll get away with some calamari, but we're not trying alternative stuff like that <laughs> as a whole. You, you like what? Like Jaws, you gonna, you been trying to eat some Jaws? No, we're not, we're not trying any, a lot of different things. Alligator, we're not trying different things, you know, sure. but you mentioned some neck bones. 
That's not even a question. We're going to, we're going to, yes, yes. Right. Whereas right. some certain other, you know, cultures would be like, oh my God, absolutely not. You know, I have some friends, you know, that if it's Mediterranean, Ethiopian, African, no, I don't know what that is. So very much, if you think kind of like a steak and potatoes kind of, you know, mentality, yeah. and that's okay to each his own. Um, one thing that I, I just thought about is the beauty of seeing through other people's eyes. Mm. And so stereotypically, culturally, we have spatial challenges. And so we like to maintain this perimeter around us. And there is historic, subconscious, innate reasons for that, you know, because we've constantly had people and things and situations in our face. Historically, stereotypically, the white privilege shows up without concern for space. Because you own, you move, you do, you be so freely in your own spaces that it's not a big deal to be in my quote unquote personal space. You know, it's just mm. regular for you. Yes. We assign offense to that spatial concern. And I think that we should kind of pull back a little bit and also have some awareness of your lack of awareness around our spatial concerns. However, most human beings know that you do not touch another human being without permission. So the spatial privilege juxtaposed against the spatial issue or challenge or concern, those lines are crossed when you innately just reach out and touch our hair. Like, you know, what was wrong with you? Don't be touching my hair unless you ask me. Because I wonder often, are you able for me to just be reaching out and touching your hair or pulling on your hair? Like, you wouldn't feel like, what are you doing? You know, maybe if it's your mom, I don't know. But even still, I can easily see like a teenager or even me being like, don't be touching my hair, mama. You know, whatever. I don't know. So that's a big deal for us, particularly Black women. Um, I'm just so disgusted that it happens so often. Like when I got tuned into the awareness that white people are reaching out and touching Black women's hair regularly as a normal common thing and doesn't even understand why it would be a, a, a abusive or offensive, I'm dumbfounded. I'm dumbfounded. Just like you said, you. I think it's just a normal body thing. Like why would you reach out and touch somebody else's body? Hair, skin babies like anything yes <laughs> yes so you know that's what I'm like oh no white woman if I'm just on the street and I'm just reaching for your your baby you're gonna be like oh stranger danger you know you'll hit me you'll push me you'll be like what are you doing or again going back to that moniker that I don't like you're calling the police on me or right? crying saying this person right. attacking me right themselves. right Right. But you could just, you know, I used to have it often. My um, daughter looked very Samoan when she was, you know, a, a younger uh, a baby. Even in the hospital, um, I had her at Weiss and it was a tumultuous birth. So we were there for a while. Right. Um, 
think we got out, but like two and a half weeks later, you know, most people that go home after like, you know, two, three days. And so I've been stamped. We have on our matching bracelets, you know, her feet have been stamped. She's matched to me. But the day I'm going home, when I tell you it was all kind of security descending upon me, they did not believe that that girl was my baby because she just looks like a little yellow, white Samoan baby, (laughs) right? Her eyes are almond shaped, you know, to this day. So she really did have a little Asian-ness about herself. But remember, I told you where one side of my family comes from Belize and Panama, and we're very Caribbean. My own um, paternal grandmother, she has a lot of Indian, Native American-esque and by India, Indian, I mean, like, literally, like, India, right? Oh. Not, you know, right? So she Not has Native. that, and right. And then she also has Native American in her lineage um, and a very full Spanish, Spaniard, Caribbean, you know, mm. derivative. Her side, her DNA, there is no African basis in my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, in her DNA, So the African DNA that comes from my father's side comes from his father's side, from them having been, you know, slaves brought here. But, you know, his mom, her side is all European, Asian, Spanish, and Caribbean. How fascinating. That's it. You know, pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, I want to say... Wherever Tiffany Haddish is from, I can't remember the Eritrea, Eritrea, I can't remember, something like that, somewhere over there, Sierra Leone, those kinds of things, Um, French come up on my father's side. Anyway, the point being, (laughs) we cannot touch each other without permission. Right. (laughs) We cannot continue to be angry that we've been talking about how we are whored out as Black women in different situations automatically because we're seen as, you know, sexually free, mostly from a whoremonging standpoint. That's where that comes from. You know, a Black woman in her voluptuousness can definitely be touched and taken because what else is it there for? A white woman, not so much. But when it does happen and it comes out in the Me Too movement, there were several, several women of color that started talking about it before we had the Me Too movement that were dismissed. And even during the Me Too movement, equally dismissed because they were Black Mm. or because they may have slept with a different associate seemed to be promiscuous. or asking for it by way of however they were dressed and not necessarily the same being said of anyone that is not minority. Right. You all are tested and tried and taken and we are, is that what really happened? Question. Mm. Mm. Oof, there's so many places we could go with this. (laughs) (laughs) That one, what you just said right now, just reminds me of the cry of a white woman, you know, and how is it that white woman has entered into the classification of minority? 
And just, just to me, it's so bothersome because it's like hijacking a movement that was never meant for, for the white woman. Right. And, and yet you, you give a really great example of the spatial lack of awareness. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's almost, there's a level of entitlement added to it. Oh, that I might give that to all level of humanity, but not to a black woman, you know, and going back to the cognitive dissonance, one might not see that as a part of their own self-image. And yet that's the behavior that they're enacting. And that's a white woman and a black woman standing next to each other of the same age, same body type, same everything that are on a subway train and a gentleman, regardless of his color, that goes to offer assistance as we're being jostled and about to fall, is that person most likely to come in and grab both of them, to shore both of them? Is that person going to have to choose? Does that person have to think about it? Or is some part of that person innately going to rescue the white woman? Mm. is the question that is being asked rhetorically. Mm. Because having lived in New York before, I've seen all three of those play out by both a white male and a black person, a black male. I've seen a black male reach out to help the white woman steady herself. Mm. I've seen the black male reach out to just the black woman to help steady herself. They're standing next to each other. Do you get the imagery? Yep. I've seen only a black male grab both of them and the white woman shun. I've never seen a white male grab both of them. Mm. Very interesting. It is. Do we glare equally? Does a white woman glare equally as hard as uh, as a black woman at a mixed race couple? Does it matter whether or not the woman is white or black versus the man white or black? Do white men see a black man with a white woman differently than they do a black woman with a white man? Is there a difference? Does it even matter? Is the story of the lovings, the couple that first broke the mixed race marriage barrier, so to speak, why is it still compelling to this day? Because we all still question, is it too much for you to take our black men and put them in jail? Is it too much for you to kill off our black men? And yet now we also have to deal with the fact that you steal, quote unquote, our black men. Is it considered stealing if you just can't help who you fall in love with? Am I willing to date outside of my own race? Yes. For me, now that you all know me a little bit, would it seem like I would be willing to date outside of my race? 
Maybe, maybe not. Don't know, don't care. All I know is I am looking for love to occur once again in my life. Don't necessarily occur how it comes. Because I just, at the end of the day, want a nice, kind, compassionate, funny, and loving person. Would I prefer that that person be a Black male? Probably. But it doesn't mean that that's my only preference or that's all that I'm open to or that's the only circle I'm ever going to be in because we've already also learned I travel in many different circles. So I met, meet men, you know, from all different kinds of walks of life, you know? Does that person have to work versus not work? Preferably. But as we also know, many people that were gainfully employed sometimes become unemployed. What do you need in your partner? And why do we care what somebody else is doing that we're not sleeping with, that's not helping us with our bills, looks like or acts like? Not your business. Why does it matter? So to the Black women listening, stop tripping on what athlete is dating who and whether or not they all go with white women or not. Why? Doesn't matter. Is it your man? Because other than that, if it's your man, then maybe you can need to question whoever they're with if it's not the main thing. Same with white women. You know, I don't feel like you're stealing anything, but also <laughs> don't be looking at the successful white man that has, you know, a black woman on his side. He fell in love with her. We don't look at it like that, you know, with Robert De Niro. We don't look at it like that, you know, with other people. Why? Is a mixed race anything so important for us? We are so indoctrinated in black or white, and it kind of almost discounts every other ethnicity on the planet, other cultures. Yeah, and and going back to the systems of that, like that's so purposeful, right? The just like the cry of the white woman. It's like so many deaths, so many families have been broken up, so many murders have happened for this tears of the white woman. And does it mean as a white woman that I need to collapse in that reality? No, but it does mean I need to build up my willingness and ability to to know the history, to know how this has been weaponized. And I've been a part of historical weaponization. Like Till is out now, you know, I wonder how many, you know, I venture to say so many white families don't even know the story of Emmett Till, you know, and yet that's just one of how many of the of the cries and it's 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 not about blaming white women but it is about understanding like you talk about the spatial awareness it's like i've been using terminology of like give black people space you know Mm -hmm. like meaning the the anger that a black person might have when seeing me has nothing to do with me but it has everything to do with historical whiteness And so the compassionate thing for me to know about this person's humanity is this person doesn't know me. They don't know my name. They don't know my story. They just see what they see. And now they're going to have whatever sense of reaction and internal narrative about me. It's not my job to change that narrative. It's just to give some space. Let me give space to the fact that that person is allowed to feel what they feel based on the historical history that has led to this point. Now their healing is ultimately their own. So we probably aren't going to end up in dialogue, but another friend like you and I, you cannot, you and I can actually break apart the nuances of the things Mm -hmm. and reach each other's humanity and be able Mm -hmm. to spend time with each other. And therefore I get the trans 
um, going beyond to anyone who loves, right? I'm looking mm-hmm. for a person who wants to ultimately love and yet culture is real. So do you want someone who knows your culture, who's more, of course, and you're not limiting it to the preference. It's such a powerful thing that you're saying, because it once again speaks to your story of like, how do you reach for the love, even with this much abuse and historical, systemic, rooted, and present day real life experiences that you've come against and continue to face um, the systemic whiteness and these systems of whiteness that aren't necessarily rooted in our historical culture. Yeah. And like friend to friend and girlfriend to girlfriend, um, you know, we have to notice when we have those twinges, you know, right. And so I'm thinking of, um, let's, let's unpack, um, give black people space. So we're so pun intended trigger happy culturally. It's said with compassion, you know, it's said with empathy and it's said with cause, you know, cause that we we do need space. It's heard from my ears as you don't have to give me permission to have space and you don't get to give me permission to have space. So no, you do not have to utilize the terminology give black people space you know no give people space period to have human space their own agency to be you know one of my favorite terms um that I use is the art of being and I do be in caps because it's really about us being as human beings in our being you know and I know that's very simple but also very complex And so no one gets to give Black people anything, not even Black people, Mm. but Black people will have an understanding differently from any other, right? Mm. And so so you don't have to, it's all about us understanding that we all have agency to just coexist and be and share and talk. And I'm actually kind of torn. And I go through this, you know, historically, systemically, daily with, we need something for us. Black people need help, stuff, healing, support empathy and something as fictional as Wakanda is why it resonates so heavily with us because you know we haven't had it historically across industries and then when we do get it in a movie format there's always some kind of you know stick to it or comedy or slapstick which is it reminds us of minstrel and the chicken circuit and you know we've we've been through so much. Mm. The telling of the Dorothy Dandridge story of her going and getting in a pool and the whole pool having to be evacuated and then cleaned out for days and not used for an entire week because she put her feet in the water. She didn't even get wholly into the water. You know, the Pearl Bailey aspects, the 
it's 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 everything. It is coming up of age and all I knew of was Martin Luther King for the most part, a little bit on Malcolm X in school, but Malcolm X was the bad one and Martin Luther King was the good one. Really? Why? And John F. Kennedy was, you know, the king of America, you know, if there was royalty, you know, and of course, Jackie O, you know, but I got to learn about um, Mega Evers at home. I have to learn about Nat Turner at home. I have to learn about, you know, the truth behind um, Napoleon at home. I learn about the Tuskegee experiment from a scientific necessity and research methodology versus the essence of what it is. Um, mm. I learn about, uh, you know, the the circus acts that we were historically, the pygmies, you know, and how they were seen um, as, you know, circus acts because of their short stature. Um, you know, the cancer cells um, being extracted without permission from Henrietta Lacks. The fact that her family never knew about it, even though it has helped all of us oh, having yes. to deal with cancer, so there's scientific importance in it, but the ways and means in which it was extracted, no, no, unacceptable. When is whomever going to give us our stuff back that you stole that we're looking at in museums that we visit anyway? You stole it. Yes, it. right. Colonial regimes stolen, and now these are in museums as if they're artifacts, not looking at the And then this. when we get to get it back, you want us to buy it back? Astounding. We have to pay millions of dollars to get our stuff back? That you stole. You stole it. Mm. You stole it. No one, and this is nothing against some of the larger coffee houses, but those that come from third world countries that are farmed by those farmers, you know, tilling that soil, mining those coffee beans, and they're not even getting 13 cents on the dollar for what is made millions millions they're not even paid 13 cents for their labor per hour there's no one american person that will accept a wage of less than a quarter per hour and yet it's okay much when we less. go to these resorts and, you know, God help me, I love a resort. I love it. But I'm always attuned to going into community because the fact that it might be, you know, seven whatever to one American dollar, or as I'm told now, some of the countries that I love, they're at 13 to one. That just can't be. And it's not until you see a regime 
people on the ground, guns in hand, mm. and you're specifically told, do not step foot off that resort. The fact that that resort, you feel like, oh, it's making this community X number of dollars or whatever, you know, however, no, it's going to a regime. It's going to one particular king or kingdom and you're contributing to it. So you can be in a beautiful pool right by the ocean, you know, without nary a thought on what it takes to live and coexist. So true. It's not until you see that there are whole quote unquote latrines built into the sides of the road, even in India, even in uh, different parts of Africa, and that is how people use the bathroom. And those same feeders, if you will, filter into their water-based system. And so we'll get mad at a Rotary International for galvanizing their different clubs to bring water into the continent and them being largely, you know, white entities and different things like that. And I will say yes, and hear, hear, and you need these types of organizations. And I will even join that organization. I'm a proud member of the Cosmopolitan, you know, club of Rotary International, because at least I know we're helping bring a water into a community that needs it, filter water to, you know, get rid of dysentery and other like diseases and Ebola. It's a no-brainer. And so, yes, I'm still very much a Black power every hour type of chick. You know, yes, I'm a sister like no other to my core. You know, yes, I will be like on the move and Black power, right? Yes, yes. But I will also readily embrace, hug, stand by, work by, support anyone of any ethnicity that will help not just my people, but those that have been historically disinvested, which more than likely always ultimately ends up being minorities. Yes. Unfortunately, it's just the way of the world, the world, not just America, the world. Yes. So yes. some I think wanna... it's a joke to be like colonizer or whatever, but that I mean, that's just what happened. You go, you assume, you take over by way of war. We support never ever taken anything away from those that have served in the military or the armed forces, but it's always a part of an overall system and a way to rise to power politically. Anytime we are failing across the global ecosystem, America will find itself in some type of war. Mm, mm. Well, well said, well said. I want to just thank you for the the language call in. Um, you you adjusted the language in in the point I was making, and and it was like you don't give black people anything. And I think this is such an important correction um, because the point I was trying to make, the impact, and I know you were feeling the impact, which is why you made the correction, is where I was going. Is it's respect black space right? It's respect. It's not me giving Black people anything, right? Mm -hmm. They have age, people, we all have agency and a part of systemic abuse, no matter what form it's coming, is our agency is removed systematically. Mm -hmm. And so a part of our own white 
deconstruction is to recognize how our own unconscious biases don't include agency of Black people. Mm-hmm. And that might not be the same as other the ways you've been taught to relate to other cultures, because other cultures have been given more agency than Black people in all these rages. And going back to appropriation, and yet Black people's culture has been extracted, extracted, extracted on so many layers and forms over so many um so many, many, many decades of years. I just, I really appreciate that correction. Mm-hmm. It was just a very beautiful correction to the point and a powerful point, the, the spatial point. Thank you. And I ask listeners to really ask, you know, would you violate the space of other people's bodies the same way that, that Black people's bodies are violated, whether it's their hair or their environment. And this has so much to do with the historical programming of Black and white, not the nuance of culture, but specifically the programming that's been layered and layered and layered specifically on Black people Um, and in the white psyche towards Black people, um, to make that point. We're, we're wrapping up here, but I, I know you might have a, a few more points you want to make. And I also just want to leave you with a question too. Um, is there, there any more points that you want to make sure we throw in here? So um, I have two favorite quotes. Um, the first is education and works are levels to uplift people. This is W.E.B. Du Bois, Du Bois, as some people say. So I'm gonna say it again. Education and work are the levers to uplift people. He does not say black people. Doesn't necessarily mean just black people, but these are levers across our worlds that are used as tools to uplift people. So they just had laws that were passed um, for Arab women that can now no longer go to school girls, right? It doesn't necessarily impact our world, but the fact of knowing that in some African cultures and some Arab communities, you go to school, you could be murdered, very, very sad, very sad. My other favorite quote, which is also a quote that I used historically for my consulting firm, we turned 30 next year, we're really excited. Um, And I help people start their businesses, run them effectively and efficiently, do a lot of grant writing, bids, contracts, federal um, contracts, um, have raised a lot of money lot of money for affordable housing that, you know, benefits our communities in the Chicagoland area and across the country. Um, So I'm very proud of that. And so um, we formed it under the basis of Winston Churchill, Sir Winston, Mm. um, that we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. That is literally how I lead, how I live. A quote that I can assign my value system to. Mm. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. 
And that's all I'm looking to do. And that's all I want people to do. Now, those two quotes notwithstanding, yes, quotes by others, historical Black figures, yes, know them, love them, whatever. These two, by these two males of different ethnicities, of different values even, if you will, I like them. I can get behind that. I love to work. I love to having been educated and to stay educated. I'm in school now getting an executive MBA. I'll probably be in school till, you know, I become part of the earth again. Um, and that is the importance of the, you know, the way we can grow, evolve and be together mm. as the gift of being beings upon this earth. Cause so many of our loved ones and associates and acquaintances um, are no longer with us, you know? Um, yes. And so how are you being and what are you being? Are you part of the ugliness that we see and talk and gossip about? Mm. Or are you part of the goodness of this earth? You know, mm. are you replenishing or are you taking away? Are mm. you conscious or are you just unconsciously or consciously or subconsciously being a pariah to humanity? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, what what I was struck with was like a, like when you said the being, what what are you emanating? Like what's the scent that emanates off you, right? And and it's like right. a, it's a frequency. It's a it's it's a vibration. Yes, it's a feel, you know. And so I know that in my past, I probably have turned off some people, but I also know that their first, first impression of me was based on their own assumptions of me, having never opened their mouth to discover me or inquire. They would see a face or they would see my posture or whatever and assume, you know, I might be a little bit, you know, bourgeoisie or bougie as we say, or I might be standoffish or, something. I'm none of those. I am an open, chill, cool book and love conversing and getting to know people, you know, and I've been that way literally since I was a little girl, you know, and if my mom were here, she would co-sign it. Like <laughs> she'll talk to anybody from anywhere. She does not care. She does not care. So, you know, I like that aspect of who I am, you know, even though it does irritate my children sometimes, like <laughs> stop talking to people, stop giving people money, stop doing this, stop doing this. you don't get to tell me what to do. So they get the same kind of course correction, like you have no authority here, you know, and yeah, so this, this is a better way to phrase that to get yeah. to the point. <laughs> all right, so we have, um, we all have the authority and the opportunity and the beauty to be more loving, particularly starting with ourselves. Mm. You know, it's our selfishness or our jealousy or our lack that we take that and assign and put on others because they may have, 
you know, it is the envy, the jealousy, the why does this person get to win the lottery or not? Like whatever it is, you know, why does this person get a promotion and I don't? Why does this person have a job? Why do they have this nice car? It's all material. We're not taking any of it with us, you know? Learn how to coexist with the self and the being that you are in every moment. You know, mm -hmm. I have to constantly remind myself to love every particle, every atom, every cell of my being and not put my own self down because there's somebody out there in the world that's going to do it for me. Why would I do that to myself? Right, right. And it's it's really hard. My experience is I didn't even know half the inner records that were playing inside of me. Um, and so going back to that cognitive dissonance, we might think one thing of ourselves. We don't realize what that inner record is. Same thing. Mm -hmm. We might think one thing about, we think about a group of people, but then what's the actual behavior saying, right? And they cannot always be the same. So it's like the way we treat ourselves versus what, what those inner records are actually saying. It's about bringing it into the light so we can actually see what that is and make new choices, not just based on what we've been exposed to, but based on what we say we stand for, what, what we want to, what we want to stand for. And just as an example, um, it may be neither here nor there. I, I look at the way that people talk about Lizzo, you know, the um, R&B hip hop artist and her size, right? Yeah. And I also look at her freedom to be her size. And I think back to a rebel Wilson or a Carney Wilson, um, Rebel being an uh, actor, British actor, Carney being a singer, part of the uh, female singers, the sister group. And I don't remember people talking about their size. They talked about their humor. I don't remember people talking about Chris Farley's size from SNL, you know. I definitely remember people talking about, um, you know, dream girls and the first Jennifer and the second Jennifer, both Jennifers, you know, um, Jennifer Holloway, Jennifer Hudson and their size, you know? And so I'm wondering why do we have to always apologize for who we are as black women? Mm. Why do we have to apologize for our size? Why do we have to pare ourselves down to fit your imagery? Um, I don't think I can think of any one young white girl from the 70s, 80s, 90s even, or even right now that's getting their baby dolls and coloring their baby dolls brown, right? But here we are from, you know, younger ages, we all wanted Barbies and we didn't have a problem with our Barbie, but sometimes we would get different dolls and we have to use our crayon or a marker or something and color on brown because we didn't have that likeness. And even now, you know, we have, um, there's a Hamptonian uh, alumni um, graduate that created these HBCU dolls, you know, for historically black colleges. And I think they're just like the cutest because they actually have our hair. And so other doll makers that have made, you know, images that look like me for our little girls, um, and boys for that matter to play with, whichever the preference is, let's, you know, um, talk about that gender neutrality aspect. You know, we just have so much judgment in being and none of us get to do that. And none of us get to continue with that. 
we do, but who are the marginalized few of us that will say enough is enough mm. with the assignment of the judgment that we have no rights to do? Yeah. Yeah. So well said. So well said. Whew. I know. Um, <laughs> I want to wrap up here and just say in last closing words, you're in a room with a bunch of listening white people. And what do you, what's a message for, for white, white people? What's, what's your message for them? Put everything that you know and everything that you assume and everything that you think you've supported and just place it to the side and just listen and become an active listener. It's that simple. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll do the same. I think that has has been shown to be the case and over and over and over again. So I have, I have zero doubt that your community does that. Um, I have less faith in, in white people, um, but I do know it's possible because I have faith in me <laughs> um, and I have faith in my people. Um, and, and I say this very cleanly, you know, because I grew up in an othered idea of myself, I didn't look around and see the state of things. I just personally have never related to other white people because I also felt ostracized. They mm -hmm. also would touch my head and ask what was on my head or pull our turban off. So these behaviors were behaviors I had interfaced with, but not in the color of my skin, right? right. And so going back to the cultural awareness, the otherness, to me, that's why waking up to my own white exceptionalism was so dumbfounding to me because like, I wouldn't have seen that in myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, no, no, no. I, I relate to other cultures. Like I see, you know? And so this is, this is why this conversation with Yvonne has been so powerful. I can't stress it enough. Listeners go back and, and take some of the nuggets that she dropped. She, she named authors artists, activists, stories, poet, poet, poetry writers, like historians, the, the, the movements, the organizations, all of the different nuggets she's speaking to, you can Google and you can start researching and you can read that book and you can learn a little context because this isn't enough time to be able to tell you what all those things mean historically, but you get to take the language and now have something to research so you can unearth your own story and your own unconscious biases and your own unconscious ways we can't see ourselves that prevent us from seeing another human's humanity, another black person's humanity, another indigenous person's humanity, another white person's humanity, whoever the humanity is, it's the humanity that we need to start paying attention to. And we can't do that if we pretend that we don't see color because that in and of itself is rooted in historical blindness and historical atrocity. And buy my books. Um, 100% of the proceeds go to yes. help out social justice reform and social action through a nonprofit entity um, deductible as well. It is, I will send the link, um, but you can find me on Amazon at M-A-L-A-I-K-A. Apostrophe S, Malika Soul. And I'll put it in the um, show notes. So you will all have yes. it in the show notes. Click on her link, support the work, and it supports 
um, social justice. You said 100% of the proceeds? 100%. There is no money going into a pocket. It all goes straight to the nonprofit towards that specific program. Um, And so we, uh, as a, just a little side note, we were able to help 138 people um, that were sitting in prison awaiting trial um, to be able to get out. Um, All of those persons, with the exception of about nine or so that unfortunately passed away during COVID are gainfully employed. Um, Still, they are reconnected to community um, still. So those things I'm very happy and proud of that we were a part of that movement. And then we also do court advocacy. um, And then we also help um, with different varying court costs and hosting peace circles and bringing victims together. Brilliant, brilliant. And we do that yeah. solely through this. Be sure to give me the links to your organization so we can put that in the show notes as well as um, the links to be able to purchase the books, which is excellent. And um, just any other links of organizations that you would like um, our listeners to follow. We want to make sure that they are able to stay in touch with you. Awesome, Yes. So as we get ready to wrap up, do you want to uh, let us know why you chose the song you chose? Well, first of all, the artist, uh, James Brown, is like my all-time favorite artist. And I I have to give a shout out to Aretha Franklin as well. She's my favorite female all-time artist. And so my song of choice is Get Up Off of That Thing. And I just love it because it talks about like, you know, get up off of that thing and dance till you feel better mm-hmm. is my, you know, primary reason and basis for choosing the song. I'm a former professional dancer. I dance for half of my life and dancing always, always, always will make any of my rough days the absolute best. So I encourage everybody to get up off of that thing (laughs) and dance till you feel better. So that's where it comes from. I love it. And listeners, we don't listen to the whole song because of copyright um, laws, but what we do is we play a little bit of a snippet and then we have an uncomfortable conversation podcast that you can plug into and listen to each episode's song. So feel free to do that. Let's go ahead and listen in to James Brown. on the playlist James Brown you gotta love that um I just also love he's like 
you got to relieve that pressure. You know, it's like right. you really listen to this music. And I, you know, I just have more and more awe and respect for Black people and communities. The more I learn, the more history I really learn of the atrocities yeah. that have taken place, because then you can really appreciate the music and the words and the and, and really what was faced over and over again and then where this resilience came from within and whew, the appreciation. Thank you for that. Really. You're welcome for that. This has been another episode. And I want to say, please remember, folks, that dismantling whiteness is an everyday, all day, lifelong endeavor. It does not end. It's a commitment to think, do, and live better than what we've ever been expected to or allowed to before. Dismantling white body supremacy begins inside of you, inside of me, and inside of the collective we, in our personal commitment, in our own bodies of culture, to grow the white experience beyond assumed supremacy. I invite you to listen, to learn, and to grow beyond the limitations that whiteness has and continues to impose on all of us. If you need support beyond this listening space, you can connect with me at gurunishan.com. I'm a writer, speaker, and trauma healing activist, offering free and paid resources online, courses, and consulting in personal and professional reinvention. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, please send me an email at gn at gurunishan.com. Please also like, review, rate, subscribe, and share this podcast with someone that you love. Your listening support is greatly appreciated. The information presented in this podcast are for general educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed are solely the views of the individuals involved. By listening, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Nothing in this podcast is intended to replace the services of a trained therapist, doctor, or health professional, or otherwise to substitute for professional mental health, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Guru Nishan LLC and affiliate organizations shall under no circumstances be liable to any listener of the podcast or viewer for any action or inaction on your part as a result of the content you consume on this podcast or for any adverse reaction, including any emotional distress you experience as a result of consuming this podcast. 